0: It's Monday. Big week ahead. Good morning, everyone. We're so glad you're here. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. How was the week? It was good, it was good.
1: What did I miss? Lots of news? <laughs> Nothing.
0: No. of Yeah, there'll be lots of news this week as well. Let's get started with five things to know for this Monday, July 31st. So this morning, twice indicted former President Trump is bracing for potentially more charges, but it's not hurting his polling. Look at this, a New York Times-Siena poll shows him with a dominating lead, 54% of likely Republican voters picking Trump.
1: Also happening this morning, a -a Mar-a-Lago maintenance worker is set to appear in court. Carlos de Oliveira is accused of telling another employee that, quote, the boss wanted security footage deleted. Trump denies directing staffers to delete anything. All this as Trump's team is creating a new legal defense fund to foot his allies' legal fees. This coming as we learn that Trump's leadership PAC spent more than $40 million on legal fees since the start of the year.
0: An American nurse and her child kidnapped in Haiti. They were abducted from the campus of a Christian humanitarian organization. Now, the State Department says they're in touch with the Haitian authorities.
1: And that summertime sickness may be more than just a cold. Health officials are seeing signs of a new COVID surge. Mm-hmm. CNN This Morning starts right now. And we're going to start this morning with that property manager who allegedly said, quote, the boss wanted the surveillance video servers deleted at Mar-a-Lago. He will be in a Miami courtroom answering to three criminal charges. Carlos de Oliveira is the third person indicted in the classified documents case alongside former President Donald Trump and his valet, Walt Nada. Prosecutors say de Oliveira met up with Nada in June of last year to scope out the surveillance cameras around the storage room where documents were moved in and out. They say De Oliveira then asked a different employee, what are we going to do about the boss's request to delete the footage? Now, this comes as we wait for more potential indictments against the former president. We're waiting for a charging decision in the federal investigation into January 6th as the special counsel's office gets ready to meet with a key witness in the fake elector scheme.
0: And then there's Georgia, where new security barriers are up now outside of the Fulton County Courthouse as the district attorney there confirms that by September 1st, she will decide whether to charge anyone for the efforts by Trump and his allies to overturn the 2020 election there.
2: The work is accomplished. We've been working for two and a half years. We're
0: ready to go. So exactly what does that mean? What will happen? Will any of this also impact the former president's poll numbers? This New York Times-Siena College poll shows 54% of likely Republican voters say he's their pick. We've got this story covered from every angle, from Miami to Atlanta to here in New York. Let's begin with our colleague Randy Casey. is outside of that Miami courthouse where we are expecting to see the Mar-a-Lago property manager in just a few hours for his arraignment. What can we expect today?
3: Absolutely. Uh, Good morning to both of you. Well, it's another courtroom and another co-defendant as this federal case against the former president continues to grow. Uh, We are expecting the property manager, Carlos de Oliveira, to appear in court here in just a few hours to answer the charges against him. And those include conspiracy to obstruct justice, making false statements and two counts of destroying or concealing an object. All of this as the former president denies doing anything wrong. Donald Trump slamming the special prosecutor's team. He's
1: are crooked people.
3: As he learns of new legal threats he and his employees may face. Newly named co-defendant Mar-a-Lago property manager Carlos de Oliveira is set to be arraigned today in Miami. A superseding indictment alleges he, along with Trump aide Walt Nada, attempted to delete security camera footage at the club after the Justice Department issued a subpoena for it. According to the indictment, De Oliveira told one of the resort's IT workers the boss wanted the server deleted. CNN has now learned that IT worker, UCL Tavares, has received a target letter from federal prosecutors. Tavares reportedly met with investigators after Trump's first indictment in June. It's unclear if he's cooperating with the investigation, but sources say some of the new allegations against Trump were based, at least in part, on information Tavares provided. Trump, facing additional charges for mishandling classified documents, maintained his innocence on social media, claiming his legal team voluntarily handed over the tapes to the special counsel and that he never told anybody to delete them. De Oliveira is separately charged with lying to the FBI about moving boxes of classified documents from Trump's residence to a storage room.
4: This is bad stuff, and, you know, you can't, say there was no underlying uh, potential crime here
3: the superseding indictment giving trump's opponents an opportunity to go after the front runner
4: it's pretty brazen the, the, these guys were, were acting like the um uh, the Corleones with no experience. Other
3: candidates treading more cautiously over the indictment as Trump remains popular with the GOP base.
5: None of us want to be talking about indictments. I don't even know if it's the third, fourth, or fifth indictment right now, but what I can tell you is it's a distraction.
3: Most use the issue to steer the
6: conversation to the future. One of the right ways to do that is to pardon the former president of the United States from what is clearly a politicized prosecution.
3: Even Trump's top rival, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, wary of engaging.
6: I wanna spend less time
7: litigating that because that's really looking in the past and more time focusing on the future in terms of what we need to accomplish as a country.
3: At a GOP party dinner in Iowa, direct criticism of Trump drew a rebuke from the audience.
8: Donald Trump is running to stay out of prison. And if we elect, I know, listen, I know the truth. The truth is hard.
3: Closing out the dinner, Trump steered clear of the new charges against him.
9: If I weren't running, I would have nobody coming after me.
3: And Carlos de Oliveira is expected to appear in court here this morning with his lawyer, John Irving. That is a D.C.-based, Washington, D.C.-based attorney. We have also been able to confirm that Irving's law firm was paid nearly $200,000 in 2022 by uh, Trump's super PAC Save America as well. Poppy, back to you.
0: Randy Kay, thank you for the reporting. We'll watch there very closely today. Meantime, new overnight, CNN has learned that another employee from Mar-a-Lago received a target letter. Previously in the classified documents probe, the special counsel superseding indictment that we got last week includes detailed correspondence between Carlos de Oliveira and someone referred to throughout the indictment as employee number four. Let me read part of it. De Oliveira told Trump employee four that, quote, the boss wanted the server deleted. Trump employee four responded that he would not know how to do that and that he did not believe that he would have the right to do so. It continues. De Oliveira then insisted that to Trump employee four that the boss wanted the server deleted and asked, what are we gonna do about it? We now know who employee number four is. They are UCL Tavares. That's a -a Mar-a-Lago employee who oversees the property's surveillance cameras. And we know that he received a target letter from federal prosecutors after Trump was first indicted in June. Kara Scannell is here with more. Just wanna be clear for our viewers, it's not a new target letter that he got on Friday or something. It's been there. The question is, what does it mean? Does it mean he's going to be charged? Does it mean he's going to be a fact witness that he's going to flip? What do we know? Well,
10: we don't exactly know the answer to that question just yet. I mean, he received this target letter after Trump was indicted the first time. And we also know after he got that target letter, he changed attorneys. So, It is possible that that makes a difference here of why he was not indicted alongside uh, de Oliveira. But Mm -hmm. it's something that we just don't know. But obviously he is um, at the center of these allegations here and they chose not to indict him at this time. But someone who was engaged in what the prosecutors say was this allegedly obstructive conduct who um, there is no evidence that any surveillance tapes were deleted uh, so whatever he did with that information, nothing was ultimately deleted. But someone who is a, an important person here, someone who could potentially be a witness if this goes to trial.
1: I, again, as an outsider that's watching this from afar, you're our legal expert. You know all the things. Um, so if this is a difficult question, I apologize. But I'm trying to piece together the timeline, which is the first indictment comes, then the target letter to UCL Tavares. The superseding indictment has new information in it. Tavares has not been charged. Taveras has changed lawyers to a lawyer that is not being paid by Trump's super PAC, by my understanding. I'm just trying to connect dots here. I know you're saying that we don't have specific information of cooperation, but doesn't this seem to look like he may be cooperating?
10: Yeah, I mean, that is the, the kind of fact pattern you expect to play out for someone who is cooperating because he doesn't get charged in the superseding indictment uh, where there is an opportunity. I mean, they were bringing they were charging to Oliveira. They use the name um, Trump employee number four, which is usually what prosecutors do when they don't want to. You know, they're not going to identify someone that they're not going to charge with a crime. And they also don't Mm. call this person a co-conspirator or an unindicted co-conspirator. They're choosing to identify the person as an employee. So that would signal a sign that he is unlikely to be charged. But. With all of this, we just don't really know
0: right. <laughs> until it happens. To Phil's point, which is a great one to tie those things together, David Schoen last week um, on Friday, who is Trump's former lawyer in, in the second impeachment hearing, said so much rests on the credibility of employee number four in this. And so now we know the name. We didn't know that. And so this is where defense counsel will really focus in, and making their counterargument, however way this goes. What about Bernard Carrick? A lot of people here in New York know his name, of course, former New York City police commissioner. He's going to speak with the special counsel in in a few days. He was part of turning over a lot of those documents we talked about last week from conversations that he had had, was a big ally of Trump. Why does this matter?
10: Right. So Bernard Carrick was working for Rudy Giuliani, who at the time was Trump's attorney, and he was kind of the quarterback for all of these efforts to dig into allegations of fraud in the election. Mm-hmm. So he was essentially Giuliani's investigator. And the reason why he will go in is because they want to know what exactly he was following up on and looking into. And, you know, his attorney was on CNN yesterday. And, you know, he was saying that it would be, you know, idiotic for the special counsel to bring charges before speaking with Bernie Carrick. But that is because their argument is that you know, he was running down all of these legitimate concerns or questions. And so obviously this wasn't a corrupt intent, but, you know, the counter narrative to this is that there none of these election fraud claims uh, were legitimate. The courts were throwing them out. You know, there were affidavits by people that, you know, just were never substantiated. But, you know, he's one of these witnesses that he was involved in this effort, he's someone that Smith's team would want to talk to, to want to understand exactly you know, what conversations he had. Obviously, he turned over those documents. Uh, They already spoke with Rudy Giuliani. uh, But, you know, as this investigation, if anything, we've seen it is so expansive and they're almost leaving no stone unturned, talking to nearly everybody. Uh, You know, that interview, his lawyer said, is in the next week. But, Mm -hmm. you know, Smith's team can operate on their own schedule. They don't have to wait to talk to him. He's not you know, the centerpiece of this investigation in order for them to decide when and if they're going to bring charges.
1: There's a lot we don't know, it feels like, but you know, most of the things. <laughs> Canal. Thank, you. Thank you. Now over to Fulton County, Georgia, where District Attorney Fannie Willis is reaffirming that her office plans to announce charging decisions by September 1st. Willis telling a CNN affiliate over the weekend, quote, the work is done. We're ready to go. CNN's Sarah Murray, fresh off of her one-hour documentary on this very topic that aired last night live in Atlanta outside Fulton County Courthouse. Murray, what's your sense of things? You've covered this so closely. What's your sense of things right now in terms of timeline when this may actually happen?
11: Well, good morning, Phil. I still think that we are in the sort of weeks away window rather than the days away window, but it's very clear that preparations are ramping up. You can see behind me that barricades are already starting to go up around the Fulton County Courthouse. Today is the day when much of Willis's team is going to begin to work remotely. Another security precaution that they're taking. And our local affiliate, WXIA, caught up with Willis at a back-to-school event over the weekend where she was very clear that the brunt of her work on this case is already done and that people may not be super thrilled with the upcoming charging announcement she has to make. Take a listen. Some people may not be
2: happy with the decisions that I was making and sometimes when people are unhappy, they act in a way that could create harm. The work is accomplished I and mean, we've been working for two and a half years and we're ready to go.
11: Now, obviously they're concerned about people who may be unhappy with whatever these charging decisions are is what's precipitating this enhanced security and I suspect we're gonna see a whole lot more of this in the coming weeks, guys. Maybe it's
0: just me, but I was surprised to hear the, the candor there. I mean, she didn't lay out what's going to happen, but what she said, especially in the latter part of the sound that you played, was a bit surprising. I guess we're in that window now, between now and September 1st, right, when she said a charging decision would be made. Any, any sense of what week, how soon, how close
11: to September, or more like August? Yeah, I mean, one thing about that interview is she's not saying whether anyone actually is going to face charges. I mean, obviously, we expect that she's going to seek indictments, but we'll see. I still think that we are probably a week or two away from her making whatever these announcements are. There's a hearing in this case on August 10th that has to do with some of the Trump legal team's arguments to disqualify Fani Willis from the case and to throw out a lot of the evidence that she's collected. Frankly, I would be surprised if she decided to press ahead with an indictment before that hearing. Of course, she's the district attorney. It's up to her discretion. But I'm betting we still have a teeny bit of wiggle room and we're going to see a lot more security between now and when that announcement actually comes, guys.
1: All right. Sarah Murray, live for us outside the Florida County Courthouse. Thank you.
0: The death toll in Pakistan has risen to 54 this morning after a suicide bomber attacked a political convention there.
1: And a new threat from Russia overnight. A top official saying Moscow may be forced to use nuclear weapons if Ukraine's counteroffensive is successful. The latest from the battlefield.
0: More CNN this morning to come after the break. Welcome back. This morning, an investigation is underway after a suicide bomber killed at least 54 people. This happened in northwestern Pakistan. More than 100 were injured in the attack, targeting an Islamist party's political convention. Local police say the explosives detonated near the convention stage. Ivan Watson joins us now. Tragic, so deadly, and no one has claimed responsibility yet. Is that right?
12: That is true, Uh, and as you pointed out, the target was this uh, Islamist political party gathering. That party uh, is part of the governing coalition in the Pakistani national government. Uh, The results are, are, are so devastating, at least 54 people killed, 12 of those victims are under the age of 12. Now, tragically, Pakistan has this very long and, and and deadly history of political violence, of suicide bomb attacks, and there are a number of different groups that have been involved in some of these. Uh, just uh, d- January of this year, the Pakistani Taliban was implicated in a suicide bombing uh, that hit a mosque in a police compound in the northwestern city of Peshawar, with dozens of people dead uh, and injured. And ISIS has been implicated in one of the deadly deadliest suicide bomb attacks in Pakistan's modern history. That was back in 2018, targeting another political party. Uh, And What this is doing is, in a country that's no stranger to violence, Pakistan is believed to be heading towards national elections uh, this fall, and the tensions are just going to ramp up, it's believed, so when a deadly attack like this raises the specter of additional violence on the horizon. Poppy.
0: Ivan Watson, it absolutely does. Thank you for that reporting for us.
1: Well, Also this morning, the political crisis is growing in the West African nation of Niger. Regional leaders have issued sanctions following the coup. The president of nearby Chad also met with coup leaders and with ousted president Mohamed Bazoum, hoping to find some kind of peaceful solution. You can see it there. Meanwhile, thousands turned out in support of the coup. They shouted support for Russian President Vladimir Putin, while tense scenes played out in front of the French embassy. as Larry Madowo joins us live from Nairobi, Kenya. Larry, we saw the EU condemnation. Obviously, U.S. has been vocal about their condemnation as well. The most interesting de- development, at least for me, over the course of the weekend was the 15-nation bloc uh, of Western African states really condemning and actually threatening the potential use of force. What's actually happening right now on the ground?
8: That's right, Phil. ECOWAS, that's the Economic Committee of West African States, has said that this military junta in Niger has one week to restore President Bazoum or they will use force. So that's fighting words from the regional bloc there. They've isolated the country, no-fly zone. Um, they've uh, issued travel bans and all that. But you see the military junta a short while ago essentially saying that France is planning military strikes to free the president they deposed. They're claiming that. France has been meeting with former officials of the government they deposed to get military and political power to remove them from office and reinstate President Bazoum. But you see this huge anti-French anger in the country. On Sunday, huge protests, thousands of people outside the French embassy trashing it, breaking windows, setting a window on fire. Because many in Niger support this coup, to be clear. They support the military taking over because they feel that the last president was an ally of the US and France and a puppet of the West. And they especially are angry at France, a former colonizer of the country that they see as keeping them in this impoverished state despite it being a very rich country. Listen to one protester.
13: We also came out to tell this little Macron from France that Niger belongs to us. It's up to us to do what we want with Niger. What we want, we deal with who we want and how we want. We are forming support for the army.
8: There's a, it's a rich nation, rich in gold and uranium and lots of other minerals, but one of the world's poorest countries. And a short while ago, the na- rather overnight, the president of neighboring Chad has been meeting with the coup leaders and the deposed president the first time we've seen him. And it's interesting that he's mediating in this role, trying to avoid this military intervention by the regional bloc in West Africa that insists this has to stop, there has to be a return to constitutional order in Niger because this risks destabilizing not just Niger, but across the region, which suffers from huge amounts of terrorist attacks from armed groups affiliated to both ISIS and Al Qaeda fail. Yeah,
1: major geopolitical implications here. Larry Madoo keeping us posted, thank you.
0: And take a look at this video out of Beijing. At least two people have died, more than 31,000 evacuated, as a typhoon has lashed China's northeastern region. The typhoon is the strongest storm to hit that area, in 17 years. Since making landfall on Friday, it has affected more than 880,000 people. It has caused nearly $60 million in property damage. That's according to Chinese
1: state media. Before President Trump's political action committee spending $40 million on his legal fees. What his donors know and how his Republican presidential rivals are responding. Next.
7: We also spend more than 20 million attacking me.
1: Former President Trump's political action committee has spent more than $40 million, that's million with an M, on legal fees this year alone. That's according to a source familiar with the matter. And that's also more than double what it spent last year. The political action committee, which raises most of its funds through small dollar donations from Trump supporters, is expected to report to the FEC this morning as the former president's legal battles continue to mount seen as Kristen Holmes, is live in Washington this morning. Kristen, that's a big number. Uh, It's a huge number, and I think it's easy to kind of get numb to to that reality, but it's also the small donor element of it. They're the primary driver of uh, Save America PAC's funds, for the most part, at least as far as I understand. Do they feel like inside the campaign this is going to have any impact on those supporters?
14: Well, when you talk to members of the campaign, Phil, they believe that their donors know exactly what is going on in terms of Trump's legal issues, and the people who are donating to the former president are going to continue doing so because they support him. And there is no evidence that that is going to change. Obviously, it is very clear it's all over the news that Trump is facing these multiple investigations, so small-dollar donors are aware. But I do want to point out something that we reported months ago, which was the donating structure that shifted just a few months ago, very quietly, at the beginning of Trump's campaign back in November, that donating structure was that most of the money, actually 99 percent of the donations that were given to the campaign went to the campaign and one percent went to Save America PAC. Then, quietly, that shifted to 10 percent of donations going to Save America PAC, with 90 percent going towards the campaign. And when you talk about just how big that number is, that 40.2 million dollars, that is just for the first half of the year. And to be clear, this is not just covering Trump's legal This is covering all of the associates, former, current employees, aides, who got wrapped up in these investigations. And we have learned that because of this, Trump's team is creating a legal defense fund. Now, it is not entirely clear who exactly is going to fall under this fund, but it's obviously to offset some of these enormous legal fees. And we are told that this will not affect Donald Trump. This will not cover his legal expenses. But again, this is for those witnesses, those associates, as you'll. Remember, in the Mar-a-Lago documents case, both of his co-defendants are people who are represented by lawyers who have been paid an enormous amount of money from that Save America PAC. But- just to give you the details we do know about the Legal Defense Fund, it is going to be called the Patriot Legal Defense Fund. And it is going to be run by Trump's long term political advisor, Michael Glassner. Again, waiting to see what those details actually look like. But they are clearly hemorrhaging money here when it comes to these legal fees.
0: It's interesting to see some of Trump's 2024 rivals using this as a new sort of form of attack on the form like DeSantis, for example, when he's not going after Trump for so many other things. Right. He will with this.
14: Absolutely. And we already saw that at a campaign stop. We can actually take a listen to the full sound of what he said when it came to being asked about this enormous amount of money.
7: We also spend more than 20 million attacking me. They were. He was attacking me with these commercials, phony commercials. When I was just doing my job as governor, I wasn't even a candidate. Instead of focusing on Biden, he was attacking me for twenty, twenty-five million dollars, and uh, so I don't think that was a good, good use of the money. And I think that uh, we need to be focusing on using our energy on resources on defeating Biden and the Democrats.
14: But of course, he is still walking this fine line, not really attacking trump he's saying he shouldn't be spending this money attacking him but not really going into the legal matters at hand that continue to plague trump as he runs up to this third presidential bid
1: all right kristen holmes thank you very much let's
0: talk about all this national political reporter for the associated press michelle price is with us and political video reporter for the washington post joyce Poe is with us morning guys morning ladies uh, so but just beyond beyond the, the money here, can we talk about the polling and the New York Times poll that is so, so striking in terms of Republican leaning voters? Just pull it up on the screen. This national poll, 54 percent for Trump. DeSantis is so far behind at 22 percent. And next in this poll, Ramaswamy at five percent and everyone below there. What does it tell you?
15: You know, what we are looking at is this early polling, uh, you know, at, looking at the Republican field and seeing what's happening here. And I think it's an early indication as to where things are shaking up in uh, in Republican politics, at least early on. Uh, you know, we saw Trump yesterday during his event in Erie, Pennsylvania, talking about this polling and how he is so far ahead of Ron DeSantis. And we know DeSantis uh, later on will have an economic policy press conference sort of trying to reset His campaign after a pretty brutal week last week, you know, cutting a a third, more than a third of his campaign staff. He's been under fire from members of his own party regarding his comments on slavery and how uh, the new curriculum is structured in Florida. So this is, you know, what we are seeing right now early on as to how things are shaking up in the Republican race.
1: One of the things that's fascinating to me, we saw over the weekend, there, there have been a very small core group of Republicans who are running for uh, the nomination, who have been willing to criticize the former president, willing to criticize the fact he's been indicted twice, maybe indicted a third and fourth time. Uh, one of them is Will Hurd. He was in Iowa this weekend uh, at a cattle call of sorts in the political world. Take a listen to what happened.
8: Donald Trump is not running for president to make America great again. Donald Trump is running to stay out of prison. And if we elect...
1: You you heard the boos and heard made clear afterwards he kind of expected that to some degree. He's framed himself as a truth teller and kind of knows the dynamics here. But you listen to that, you see how candidates are trying to figure out, as Joyce was saying, how to actually message here. And then you look into the New York Times poll that Poppy was citing there, and there's like an amazing graph in the story written by Shaden Goldmacher that says, Mr. Trump held decisive advantages across almost every demographic group and region and in every ideological wing of the party, the survey found. Uh, As Republican voters waved away concerns about his escalating legal jeopardy, he led by wide margins among men and women younger and older voters, moderates and conservatives, those who went to college and those who didn't, and in cities, suburbs, and rural areas. That's literally everyone. (laughs) So I I just, how does this end other than Donald Trump as the Republican nominee?
4: I mean,
16: it's early, but at this point, it seems like there's just a stasis that has settled over this race. Why though? Well, he he is kind of running almost as an incumbent. He's not in office, office right now, obviously, but he is a former president. We have never had this happen before. Uh, you know, you talk to voters in these early states, Iowa, New Hampshire, they think that he has unfinished business to do in the White House. They want to get him back in there. They think he's ready to go on day one because he's been in office before. Uh, you know, you talked about uh, Ron DeSantis, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. These are, you know, they're new, they're new to the national stage to some degree. They haven't been in office. So uh, President Trump is just incredibly popular with the base. And it just seems like, you know, what uh, Will Hurt is trying to do. Every, all each of these 13 candidates, I think, are trying to find some little way to kind of get in there and try to take on Trump. Will Hurd's attempt is to kind of run at him, as Chris Christie is doing, rather than run, run alongside him. Uh, but he knew what he was doing in that room. He knew the reaction he was going to get. And yeah. he is also trying to get on a debate stage and, and get some national donors to help him out. That's good point. Two Republicans, um, Nancy Mace in Congress,
0: obviously, uh, but also uh, Governor uh, Chris Nunez of New Hampshire, who's not running for the White House or for governor again both sort of with a warning to their party about potentially impeaching Trump, which we heard more and more calls for last week. Those really escalated with the McCarthy comments. I thought that was interesting. I mean, in Mace's words, it puts the majority at risk and you make some of those members, quote, walk the plank.
15: Yeah, and these are similar to comments that we've heard from her on issues like abortion, where there is a radical approach within her own party as well as something that's more, you know, more moderate on the spectrum. So this is not, you know... Uh, Sort of a new perspective from her in terms of how she, you know, is kind of signaling a warning to her own party about taking the most extreme uh, approach to Biden if they are to pursue some sort of impeachment investigation against the president. Uh, But you know, she kind of plainly states that there are what what the field looks like right now is that you know there are 18 Republicans that are in House districts that Biden won. And how does an impeachment play out potentially with those moderate independent voters that Republicans will need down the line? You know, McCarthy, we see he is sort of struggling continuously to gain some consensus over his own caucus. And this is really, you know, how this produces sort of a domino effect onto the 2024 um, campaign trail and whether or not Republicans maintain power in the House, you know, and how they perform on the presidential Election is something that we're going to be watching for.
1: It's such a good point because, especially with the 18 frontliners, the freshmen, a large large portion of them are from New York and flip seats uh, in this state uh, in in the midterm elections. But Trump over the weekend in Iowa saying basically, if you're not seeking retribution on my behalf, you should be primaried, more or less, saying that, which would seem to be a, a House Speaker's total nightmare given the fact that they have such a slim majority. And yet, this is the balancing act that Kevin McCarthy always has to play. And I'm trying to figure out what's what's the end game here for
16: Republicans writ large. And, and just Republicans in Congress are in this kind of just tough spot with Trump because he is the most popular person in their party. If you are running in a competitive race, you want him to endorse you. You want to be on his good side. But at the same time, if you're running in a, in a very close race, like in, in those New York seats, you don't want to be talking about Trump. You want to be talking about the economy or other issues that are going to kind of get a But you can't consensus. piss him off. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. That's so they're, they're in a really tough spot going forward where, where if they are put on the spot for an impeachment vote, uh, either for Biden or in the impeachment expungement discussions we've seen about, about Trump, uh, there's some blowback for those members. Yeah. Michelle Price, Joyce Coe. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks,
1: guys. Well, Ukrainian drones hitting new Russian targets overnight after this attack on a Moscow shopping center over the weekend and a top Russian official now threatening a potential nuclear response. That's ahead.
0: New overnight a nuclear threat from Russia. That's right. The deputy chairman of Russia's Security Council, Dmitry Medvedev, said Russia may use force of nuclear weapons if Ukraine's counteroffensive is successful and ends with as he says, quote, part of our land being taken away. These comments come just hours after a drone hit a Moscow shopping center. Watch this.
15: Ah!
14: Ah! Oh
0: Nick Robertson joins us now. The words I think reading them are so concerning is because of what Russia views as its territory. And if he's saying these are on the table, if that is taken away, where do we land?
13: Yeah, our territory, meaning, you know, Luhansk, Donetsk, Zaporizhia region, Kherson region, Crimea, all those areas that Russia thinks that it's annexed and taken away for good. So yeah, this is a big threat. It's not the first time Medvedev has made it. And I think what's interesting here is perhaps not the headline of what he's saying, but the reason that he says that he's saying it, if we lose this territory, what is Medvedev actually saying here? Remembering he As you said, deputy head of National Security Council, former prime minister, former president of the country, not a nobody, somebody who has been outspoken in the past. So what is he actually saying? Is he saying that Russia is losing territory to Ukraine's Ukraine's counter-offensive? Is this an indication of uh, deeper down what the Russians are thinking inside the Kremlin, that perhaps this isn't going so well? So let's up the verbal ante. Does it carry any weight? I think people would be foolish to, to disregard anything that a senior Russian official says in this regard, yet there's no indication they're about to do it. Uh, and until and this far, despite all the rhetoric, um, there's no indication Russia is moving in this direction.
1: Nick, I usually save all these questions for when we're together on a foreign trip with the president, but I'm going to ask you now because I've been fascinated by this for the last several years, which is what happened to Dmitry Medvedev? He was the guy that the Obama team was trying to work, thought they could kind of undercut Putin with a relationship. For the last, for the entirety of this war, he's been saying stuff like this, being very hyperbolic, uh, very verbose in terms of his comments. What, What happened?
13: Yeah, I think you kind of get... And I miss those conversations too, Phil. (laughs) I really do. (laughs) Um, I think you kind of get into criminology here, right? You're you're trying to read what's happening behind those high red brick walls in Moscow. Um, You know, number one, I think there's this realisation, perhaps on Putin's part or those around him, he's not going to last forever. And Medvedev is much younger than Putin. And let's not forget, you know, when the Obama administration thought that there was a possibility here that Medvedev could be a different kind of guy. This was in that... This was in that switch out that Medvedev did with Putin. Putin had had his two terms as president. He couldn't be president again constitutionally. Okay, it's changed all that now. So he kind of switched out with the prime minister. So the prime minister, Medvedev, became president and and Putin became prime minister. And then after another four years, they switched back out again. So there was this feeling that there was a different Medvedev. But I think the Medvedev we see now is one that realizes that it's the the stronger, harsher, nationalist, rabble-rousing voices in Russia that might emerge as, as a potential Putin replacement leader or just want to curry favor with pen, Putin and the Kremlin right now?
1: All right, Nick Robertson, I think he was inviting me to call him whenever I wanted to to talk about this <laughs> stuff. I, think I, so. <laughs> I felt like that. I felt like that. <laughs> Thanks, Nick. Appreciate it.
0: All right, an American nurse and her child have been kidnapped in Haiti. We do have the latest on the rescue effort ahead.
1: Plus, Cardi B is fighting back after a concert concertgoer threw a drink at her while she was performing. Yo, that is a microphone. We'll tell you what happened coming up next.
0: More CNN This Morning to come after the break. American woman and her child have been kidnapped in Haiti. Alex Dorsanville has, was working with as a nurse I should say at a Christian organization near Port-au-Prince Haiti. Her husband founded that organization which released a statement saying that Alex and their child were abducted from the campus near Port-au-Prince. This happened on Thursday morning. Paula Newton just returned to Ottawa from Haiti. She joins us live. What do we know?
2: Not a lot, probably. And that's the problem with these kinds of kidnappings. This is a very delicate situation now. Uh, She and her child were taken on Thursday. And while the U.S. State Department tells CNN that they know uh, certainly of the abduction, that they're working with authorities on the ground, the hard part is to determine exactly who took her and her child. In many cases, this is for ransom. And right now, uh, the charity itself not saying much other than to release this statement. I'll read it for you now. Alex is a deeply compassionate and loving person who considers Haiti her home and the Haitian people, her friends and family. Alex has worked tirelessly as our school and community nurse to bring relief to those who are suffering as she loves and serves the people of Haiti in the name of Jesus. As I said, that was from the charity. uh, And again, uh, this is a woman who, uh, the charity says, came to Haiti to try and help what is right now a deteriorating situation with so many of the young people turning to gangs. Uh, apparently, more than 80% of the capital, Port-au-Prince, uh, has a stranglehold uh, on by those gangs, uh, and, and this is the kind of problem that so many Haitians deal with day after day after day, abductions and kidnappings being so common. I want you to listen now, though, to um, uh, this nurse from New Hampshire in her own words.
16: Alejandro invited me to come to the school to do some nursing for some of the kids. He said that was a big need that they had. At first, I didn't think that there was going to be much of a need there, but when I got there, there were so many cases. Haitians are such a resilient people. They're full of joy and life and love, and I'm so blessed to be able to know so many amazing Haitians.
2: You know, again, she was there as a nurse, someone who could bring her skills and her talents to people who desperately need them, even to operate as a charity right now, Poppy. We spoke to aid organizations. It has become so dire with so many clinics and hospitals closing. Um, they were operating a school out of there. And what is also disturbing is this seems, from what we know, to have been targeted. So they were at what they call their Christian campus, which is just outside of the capital. And she and her child were taken directly from there, and these places are not without security, but again, someone happened to know exactly where she was and that she was there with her child, Poppy. Paula Newton, please keep us posted. Thank you.
1: Well, Cardi B has had enough. It's the latest incident of concert girls throwing things at performers on the stage. Take a
3: look. <laughs>
1: That happened in Las Vegas. Someone, as you saw there in the audience, threw a drink at Cardi B in the middle of her song, Bodak Yellow. Clearly upset, she reacted by throwing her microphone into the crowd as security guards rushed the stage. Drake, Kelsey Ballerini, Harry Styles, BB REXA, all huge, uh, important elements of your playlist. Uh, just some of the other artists who've had objects from candy to jewelry to chicken nuggets thrown at them while performing.
0: Inside joke, but in all <laughs> seriousness, I hate seeing this, and it's happening all the time. It makes Is no there- sense.
1: It's ridiculous. And also, why would you waste chicken nuggets? <sighs> Is it, am I not focusing on the Coming
0: up, the Biden administration's plan to help tackle student debt, how it works and how much it's going to cost.
1: Meanwhile, House Republicans are about to meet behind closed doors with a former business associate of Hunter Biden's. What they hope to uncover, that's ahead. The Biden administration has launched a new website for its income-driven student debt repayment plan. The move comes after the Supreme Court struck down the president's student loan forgiveness program last month and just a few months before borrowers are set to begin making payments again. CNN's Arlette Sines is live in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, where President Biden wakes up this morning. Arlette, walk us through what this actually means, uh, especially in the wake of the Supreme Court case.
17: Yeah, Phil, well, the applications are now officially open as the administration is trying to offer some relief to student loan borrowers. Now, this plan is not as sweeping as that student debt forgiveness program that President Biden had proposed and then was struck down by the Supreme Court. But it is an opportunity, the White House believes, to give some help to people on an issue that is very important to young voters. Now, this will apply to current uh, and future federal student loan borrowers. Private loans are not part of this plan. And what it will do is it will Will base payments based on your income and family size. Some borrowers will see their monthly payments slashed down to zero. That includes those making roughly less than $33,000 a year or families making less than $67,500 a year. Additionally, once this plan is in full effect next year, some borrowers will see their payments cut in half. And another key component of this plan is the fact that interest will no longer accrue as long as you are making those monthly payments. Now, this is the latest effort from President Biden to try to offer some relief to student loan borrowers. This is now a beta website that is up and running. It's often a testing period for the administration so they can work out any issues with the website before the full launch, which is expected to come in August. And officials I've talked to said that their eyes have been on that October 1st date, which is when student loan payments are set to resume after that three year pandemic era pause. They wanted to make sure that borrowers understood what would be available to them as that deadline line is approaching. Phil?
1: Yeah, it's a big date indeed. Arlette Signs scooped this yesterday live for us in Rehoboth Beach. Thank you. And Zina This Morning continues right now. Hey, good morning, everyone. Let's get things started with five things to know for this Monday, July 31st. In just hours, a Mar-a-Lago maintenance worker accused of telling another employee that, quote, the boss wanted security footage deleted is set to appear in court. Former President Donald Trump denies directing staffers to delete anything.
0: In the middle of all of this, Trump extends his primary poll dominance, and it really is dominance. 54% of likely Republican voters say he is their pick. This is according to a New York Times-Siena College poll. Just 17% want DeSantis, and it is low single digits for the rest of the pack. Also, Devin Archer, a former business associate of Hunter Biden, about to speak under oath before the House Oversight Committee. The two work together on deals in both China and Ukraine.
1: Also this morning, a senior Russian official says the country may be forced to use a nuclear weapon if Ukraine succeeds in its ongoing counteroffensive. Dmitry Medvedev says there's, quote, there simply wouldn't be any other solution.
18: Also
0: this, you've seen their trucks on the road, but now trucking giant yellow has shut down. That's according to new reporting in The Wall Street Journal, even after receiving $700 million in rescue loans during COVID. Now 30,000 jobs are in danger. CNN This Morning starts right now. All right, here is where we begin this morning. The property manager, who allegedly said the boss wanted the surveillance video servers deleted at Mar-a-Lago, he'll be in a Miami courtroom this morning answering two four criminal charges. His name, Carlos De Oliveira, is the third person indicted in the classified documents case alongside former President Trump and his valet, Walt Nauta. Prosecutors say De Oliveira met up with Nauta in June of last year to scope out the surveillance cameras around the storage room where the documents were moved in and out. Prosecutors also say Ad Oliveira then asked a different employee, quote, what are we going to do about, quote, the boss's request to delete that footage? And this comes as we wait for more potential indictments against a former president. We are waiting on a charging decision still in the federal investigation into January 6th. And the special counsel's office is getting ready to meet with key witnesses in the fake elector scheme.
1: And also in Georgia, new security barriers are up outside the Fulton County Courthouse as the district attorney there confirms that by September 1st, she'll decide whether to charge anyone for the efforts by Trump and his allies to overturn the 2020 election.
2: The work is accomplished. We've been working for two and a half years. We're ready to go.
1: So obviously a question, will this impact the former president's poll numbers? No, at least according to a New York Times-Siena College poll out this morning showing 54% of likely Republican primary voters say he's their pick. Let's get things started with Randy Kaye. She's outside the Miami courthouse where we're expecting to see the Mar-a-Lago property manager in just a few hours. Randy, a lot moving here. What are you seeing right now?
3: Well, right now, uh, we are getting ready for Carlos de Oliveira to make his appearance here in court as this federal case against the former president continues to grow now involving two of the former president's employees. De Oliveira is charged with uh, conspiracy to obstruct justice, making false statements, as well as two counts of destroying or concealing an object. All of this happening as the former president continues to deny he did anything wrong. Donald Trump slamming the special prosecutor's team. These are crooked people. As he learns of new legal threats he and his employees may face. Newly named co-defendant Mar-a-Lago property manager Carlos de Oliveira is set to be arraigned today in Miami. A superseding indictment alleges he, along with Trump aide Walt Nada, attempted to delete security camera footage at the club after the Justice Department issued a subpoena for it. According to the indictment, De Oliveira told one of the resort's IT workers the boss wanted the server deleted. CNN has now learned that IT worker, UCL Tavares, has received a target letter from federal prosecutors. Tavares reportedly met with investigators after Trump's first indictment in June. It's unclear if he's cooperating with the investigation, but sources say some of the new allegations against Trump were based, at least in part, on information Tavares provided. Trump, facing additional charges for mishandling classified documents, maintained his innocence on social media, claiming his legal team voluntarily handed over the tapes to the special counsel, and that he never told anybody to delete them. De Oliveira is separately charged with lying to the FBI about moving boxes of documents from Trump's residence to a storage room.
4: This is bad stuff, and you know, you can't, say there was no underlying uh, potential crime here.
3: The superseding indictment giving Trump's opponents an opportunity to go after the front runner.
4: It's pretty brazen. These guys were were acting like the the Corleones with no experience.
3: Other candidates treading more cautiously over the indictment as Trump remains popular with the GOP base.
5: None of us want to be talking about indictments. I don't even know if it's the third, fourth, or fifth indictment right now, but what I can tell you is it's a distraction.
3: Most use the issue to steer the conversation to the future. One of the right ways to do that is to pardon
6: the former president of the United States from what is clearly a politicized prosecution.
3: Even Trump's top rival, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, wary of engaging. I want to
7: spend less time litigating that because that's really looking in the past and more time focusing on the future in terms of what we need to accomplish as a country.
3: At a GOP party dinner in Iowa, direct criticism of Trump drew a rebuke from the audience.
8: Donald Trump is running to stay out of prison. And if we elect, I know, listen, I know the truth, the truth is hard.
3: Closing out the dinner, Trump steered clear of the new charges against him.
9: If I weren't running, I would have nobody coming after me.
3: And Dale Oliveira will appear here in court today with John Irving. He is a D.C.-based attorney. Dale Oliveira will need a Florida-based attorney to enter a plea. We don't know if he does have that Florida attorney secured. Of course, this is being closely watched because if he doesn't, uh, his case will be delayed. And, of course, we're trying to figure out whether or not uh, the former president will go to trial in this case before the election cycle. That is certainly being uh, closely watched. Back to you.
0: Randy Kay, thank you for the reporting from Miami.
1: Also happening this morning, the Republican-led House Oversight Committee is expected to meet behind closed doors with a former Hunter Biden business associate. Devin Archer served with Biden on the board of the Ukrainian gas company Burisma. And according to the subpoena from those Republicans, quote, Archer played a significant role in the Biden family's business deals abroad, including but not limited to China, Russia and Ukraine. Seen a national security reporter Zachary Cohen has the details. Um, Zach, th- there is a lot of conversation about what's going on right now uh, in terms of uh, Archer and the Justice Department and in terms of what's going to happen behind closed doors. Can you explain what's actually happening today and how this fits into the kind of broader uh, issues that Archer is dealing with?
19: Yeah. Good morning, Phil and Poppy. Look, Devin Archer is somebody who House Republicans have really hyped up as someone they view as a key witness in their investigation that they say is um, focused on Joe Biden himself. And they've been trying to connect the president to what they call his son's shady foreign business dealings. And because Devin Archer uh, was involved in some of these business transactions with Hunter Biden in places like Ukraine and China, they believe that he could provide evidence that does speak to that point, connecting the president to the foreign business deals. Now, it remains to be seen if that evidence exists and if Archer can deliver it, if he even has it. But this all speaks to the broader polarization around the hunter Biden congressional investigations that Republicans have really warmed up to the idea of uh, prioritizing as they seek to potentially try to impeach the president based on some of these um, claims about his foreign dealings and his links to hunter Biden's foreign dealings.
0: Yeah, Oversight Chair James Comer said that they really do believe that he has significant things to tell the committee in fact, he said that he thinks that they are relevant to their investigation. This is sort of what we heard from McCarthy last week, the drumbeat of potential impeachment increasing. If the evidence leads us there in hearing for witnesses like Devin Archer, i filling in the blank, then then, you know, we, we may go there. How central is he?
19: That remains to be seen, Poppy. But, you know, like you said, House Republicans are floating this idea of impeaching the president yeah. before they have the evidence that warrants doing so. And, you know, the same is true ahead of Devin Archer's appearance today behind closed doors. And as we all know, that. Closed-door testimony, it can be a tricky thing because oftentimes Republicans and Democrats emerge with very different yeah. perceptions of what they saw. But, you know, there's also the Trump of it all, right? Trump is ramping up pressure on House Republicans to investigate every possible avenue toward it, to impeach the president himself. Listen to what he said uh, during a rally in Pennsylvania over the weekend.
1: The biggest complaint that I get is that the Republicans
9: find out this information and then they do nothing about it. Any Republican
1: that doesn't act on Democrat fraud should be immediately primaried and get out, out.
19: So we'll see what Devin Archer ultimately tells lawmakers today behind closed doors, but obviously the White House vehemently denies any connection to Hunter Biden's foreign business dealings and Democrats say these are all recycled claims.
1: All right, Zach Cohen, who will have to reconcile the Democratic and Republican views of the closed-door hearing later today. Thanks, man. Appreciate it.
0: Let's bring in two former federal prosecutors, Sarah Krissoff and CNN senior legal analyst. Ellie Honey, good morning, guys. Um, I'm going to leave the Devin Archer stuff on the table. Let's see what what comes out of it and get into some some more of these issues with you. Ellie, just beginning with you in terms of the fact that you've got the arraignment of Dale Rivera today? You say there's two main things to watch? Yeah, what well, are
6: they? the first thing is, will there be any indication that this guy is going to flip? As of now, there's not, right? He has thus far spoken with the FBI and lied to them. He's now charged with lying to them. He was asked, do you know anything about these boxes? And he says, absolutely nothing whatsoever. It should be fairly easy to prove. It's important to see who represents him, right, and who's funding the person who represents him, because if this person, as we've seen with other defendants in this case, Is represented by Trump-affiliated PACs. It's going to be harder for him practically and financially to flip. The other thing is let's watch the schedule. Let's watch the calendar. We now have this May trial date, which I've said before here I already felt a little shaky about. Now that DOJ has added a new defendant and three new charges against Trump, let's see what the judge says. The judge may be ticked off here because Mm -hmm. DOJ begged for an early trial date knowing they were going to add these charges and defendants and didn't say anything about it. So let's see if there's any indication on timing.
1: Uh, Sarah, it's the question I've been trying to figure out throughout the course of the last 24, 48 hours, which is employee number four, uh, UCL Tavares. He received a target letter after the first indictment, but before the superseding indictment, there appears to be information in the superseding indictment that could be attributed to him. He has a different lawyer uh, than kind of the Trump, what Ali was talking about. Um, What should we make of that?
20: Listen, it's unclear to me, frankly, whether he has any criminal liability at this point or he's just a witness, right? Ultimately, he did, he has provided information. That information is in the superseding indictment about these attempts to. Uh, delete the video surveillance, but it may be that he's just a witness here. Um, we just, it, you know, it remains to be seen. Although I do have to agree with Ellie that, you know, each additional defendant, each person who's charged here creates a real big risk to the def- to the former president that, that additional people are going to flip on the former I president. I think
0: that's interesting that your perspective seems to be different than a lot of other attorneys that we've spoken to, that you think it's like fairly significant likely that nada and de la vera would flip i just why wouldn't you
20: before then why would you get to this phase so I, I think the pressures are different along the way. Um, so when you're actually in, courtroom, in the courtroom, you're facing the judge and then ultimately facing the jury, the pressure increases on you to cooperate with the government. So there are people who cooperate at the very last minute, sort of two weeks leading up to trial. And so a lot of that, frankly, is going to depend on the advice they have from their counsel, the advice they have from their family members who they're consulting with. Um, but assuming they have independent Counsel here, who's really going through the options with them, and that's an option that their counsel should be Mm -hmm. discussing with them because you know they're they're looking at the real Mm -hmm. likelihood of going to prison.
1: That kind of brings the interest. It connects the we saw the stories about the forty million dollars spent by Trump's Super PAC on uh, legal defense, not just for the former president but for so many of his associates. Walt Nada is among them, I believe. De Oliveira is too. Um, Is that a problem? It is because the Trump folks say that there's no where they're not advising him to do anything. They're not saying do anything. It's a problem for the
6: prosecutors, but it's actually not illegal. This happens all the time. Sarah knows this from from our days as prosecutors. Companies do it. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Corporations do it. uh, Political organizations do it. Mob families do it. It's not illegal. In fact, DOJ actually doesn't even hold it against a defendant if he's paying for other people. But what's the practicality of this? Imagine you're, you know, Walt Nata or in in D. Oliveira's position. These guys don't have tons of money. They're not people of huge means. So you get this lawyer assigned to you from Trump's PAC free. You don't have to pay. It's very expensive to hire a defense lawyer. And now you're thinking, boy, the pressure. What would you have to go through in order to flip? So it's a real factor that protects Donald Trump. He's used it very well.
0: We're out of time. I have another question for you next time we got. You. <laughs> I'll get you. Next Ellie, time. Thank you. Appreciate All right. it, Sarah. Good to have you.
1: Vice President Kamala Harris taking center stage in President Biden's re-election campaign. What's behind her rapid response strategy to what she calls Republican overreach?
0: Also what Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley had to say after Mitch McConnell froze for 23 seconds at the podium during his weekly news conference last week. That's ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. So we've been talking all morning about this fascinating new polling, uh, a number of polls, especially the New York Times poll, shows Donald Trump with a dominant lead over his Republican rivals, fill it the magic wall, breaking it down. It's not just the numbers are so wow, yeah. but it's when you dig into the crosstabs.
1: Look at you. Look at that. It's too fancy for me. I just look at the top (laughs) line. No, that's exactly right. Because if you look into the different groups, the different, uh, whether it's uh, by gender, whether it's by demographic, whether it's by suburb, moderate, conservative, all of them break heavily towards the former president. And let's talk about those top lines where you have here, as Poppy was noting, the former president in this New York Times Siena College poll out this morning 54%, his closest. the competitor, 17%, nearly tripling his closest competitor. And it's not just the one poll. I think this is important to note. One poll is a snapshot. One poll should not drive what is or isn't happening in a race. It's the fact that the consistency across polling over the course of the last couple of weeks is once again confirmed by this New York Times-Siena poll. If you dig in a little bit deeper here... What's interesting is this. I think this is a point you hear from some Republicans, given how large the field is. More than half of the remaining Republicans are still open to Trump. What you have is the base, which has always been kind of rock solid in the 30 to 35 percent, according to this poll, at about 37 percent. Persuadable, about 50 percent when you put them together between persuadable and not open to the former president. That's a problem, though, when you have as many candidates in the field, because this, when you have a large field at 37 percent, is almost unbeatable. Also worth noting that 37 percent is far below the 57 percent Trump sits at in this poll. When you dig in a little bit further, the base itself, again, everybody's been talking about this for the better part of a year to the point where it's almost uh, something you get numb to or don't pay attention to, but that base is rock solid inside the Republican Party. Want to know why Republicans on Capitol Hill respond to the former president, why Republicans across the party respond to the former president? They know that 37 percent is not going to move for anything, whether it be indictments, Ron DeSantis, or anyone else. And that base, once again, is shown to be incredibly solid, maybe even a little bit larger uh, than expected in this poll. Now, where Republicans stand in terms of the primary, in terms of heading into 2024, very clearly don't think the United States is on the right track. This is not in and of itself surprising. Right track, 6%, wrong direction, 89%. You're probably going to be able to swap those uh, pretty interchangeably between the party, depending on who's Party is in the White House, but this underscores that fact. And then you look at what happens if there are only two choices. I think this is interesting, because you think large field, that's got to benefit Donald Trump. Well, what happens if you narrow it down to just two? The only two choices in this race are Trump and DeSantis. Who are you more likely to vote for? Donald Trump, 62% to 31%. Poppy, people talk about how DeSantis is going to have a comeback, how you retool the campaign and do a McCain 08. McCain in 08 at this point was down, I think, by 12 or 13 points to Rudy Giuliani. Not 30 plus. Not 30 plus. There is no precedent for a comeback. There's no precedent for a front runner blowing a lead this large. This is an enormous uh, win behind the former president. No precedent. No. For
0: blowing a lead this large. No. I spent a
1: lot of time on Real Clear Politics, putting polling averages together, trying to figure out what could what could be the model here. What because everybody talks about McCain 08 and the comeback, and it's not even close. Uh, This this would be the biggest comeback, the most significant collapse from a frontrunner in the history of the Republican Party, bar Wow.
0: Okay, come back to the table and let's talk to our political commentators, Bakari Sellers and Scott Jennings. Bakari, you're an attorney, so I want to get to part of this poll that has to do with the law and federal laws. Just 17 percent of likely Republican primary voters think Trump has committed a serious federal crime. Just 10 percent of those voters think he did something wrong in the handling of classified documents. This is, as some other legal analysts are pointing to the fact that they think the Mar-a-Lago case is like the most threatening to the former president politically in the party, not at all so.
21: Yeah, I mean, that's disturbing when you have a party that that trumpets and, and kind of marches to the beat of following the rule of law. And you have a president who has these very serious allegations against them, particularly in Mar-a-Lago. I've always maintained that the president's uh, worst legal trouble, illegal legal jeopardy is going to be um, in Atlanta, Georgia with Fonnie Willis and, and this RICO conspiracy. Um, but I don't think that's going to sway these polls either way. I don't think we've ever seen a individual have a grip on a base of a particular party the way that Donald Trump has a grip on his base. He he. It's fascinating to watch, and I, I can't wait for somebody who's smarter than I to come and diagnose this, but he actually has a grip on this party, which removes certain people from reality. The fact is, this president, when you, where there is smoke, this much smoke, there is likely fire, and whether or not the president broke the law is up for a jury, but you don't have three, four, five indictments and be a saint. Hey, Scott,
1: I, I want to switch over to the Vice President Kamala Harris and kind of the the Democratic side of this in a second. But I I just want to ask you, you know, what grounds are there for anybody to think anybody but the former president is going to be the Republican nominee at this point?
22: Well, these candidates were all hoping that uh, essentially after more indictments or after other things that are out of their control happen to Donald Trump, uh, that Republican voters will just sort of say, okay, we get it. We can't do it anymore. Who's left? So basically, you're putting yourself under the rim, hoping to tip in a missed shot at the buzzer, basically. And, <laughs> um, you know, that's a heck of a way to run a campaign because essentially your, your fate is in someone else's hands uh, or in the hands of, of the world. You know, the, in this polling, DeSantis is the only one who's uh, in double digits. Um, and obviously, he's even struggling to, uh, to break through. So right now, a little more than half the party wants to do Trump, uh, if that remains the case. Uh, He's going to be impossible to beat, particularly if the fragmentation continues. Um, But as Bakari said, it's not clear to me that any of the legal issues are ever going to drag him down or ever bring him to a tipping point. I think what Republicans believe is uh, this is basically becoming uh, an us versus them. And every time they try to drag down Donald Trump, they dig in even further so they can prove uh, that we're not going to let Democrats or Joe Biden uh, pick up the nominee of our party. And so uh, how all this turns out in a general election, I'm dubious. <laughs> but for a Republican primary, we can see it's enduring <laughs> to Trump's benefit.
0: Um, to Phil's point about the vice president, let's listen to, to some of what she said. She talked about extremists and so-called leaders on, on the campaign trail. Let, let's listen to that.
2: These extremists, so-called leaders, should model what we know to be the correct and right approach if we really are invested in the well-being of our children. Instead, they dare to push propaganda to our children. This is the United States of America. We're not supposed to do that. All is not lost. This is a moment where, again, I will say, I do believe there is a full-on attack against hard-won freedoms. But we have power. Makari.
0: just a reaction. We've been seeing her more and more speaking out like this. She went down to Florida right after, uh, you know, talking about abortion several months ago. And then she was there talking about this curriculum change and sort of how you teach the history of slavery in this country. What are we seeing here?
21: No, I actually love it. I mean, I, I can't stop smiling because you can hear her find her voice. Mm. I mean, look, she's had a very, very difficult job. I mean, the fact is she is, there, there is no other vice president in the history of the United States of America in the history the United States of America that looks like Kamala Harris. Mm -hmm. And with that, there's been a double standard in the way that she's been covered. I actually criticized the President of the United States for the portfolio that was given to uh, Kamala Harris at the very beginning. And now you see her actually getting out on the campaign trail, showing the talent, that brought so many, on, so many of us on board during her presidential campaign. Not only did she go down to Florida about abortion, but she went to Tennessee when we had the mm-hmm. expulsion of the three uh, lawmakers. She's been going around the country. And when she goes around the country, you hear the Beltway talk about the fact that she's not popular or whatever, or should people don't like her. Yeah, that's just in Washington, D.C. When she gets outside, which is what many of us have been asking uh, the White House to allow her to do, when she gets outside of the beltway of the United States of America, people look at her in awe. I mean, it's fascinating to see. And now you hear the rhythm of her words, and she's speaking to the heartbeat of this country. Yeah, I, I just think that right now, this vice president has found her footing, mm-hmm. and she is doing a very, very good job in a very, very tough position because she's not being held to the standard of Mike Pence. She's not being held to the standard of Joe Biden. She's not being held to the standard of Al Gore. She's held to a standard that far supersedes that. And she's meeting that bar as we see her out there on the road today. Hey,
1: hey Scott, I, I do want to ask you before we let you go because we're running out of time. Um, the Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley responded over the course of the weekend to former boss, uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell freezing for 23 seconds while taking questions uh, from the press. Uh, listen to this.
5: What I am saying about Mitch McConnell, Diane Feinstein, Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, all of them know when to walk away, know when to walk away. We have huge issues that need new solutions. We need new generational leaders. We appreciate your service. We appreciate what you've done. But this is why we
16: will fight for term limits.
1: Scott, I'm sure you've spoken to the minority leader. I know you guys talk fairly regularly. What's your response to that? 2%
22: in the national polls, know when to walk away. That's super advice. <laughs> I mean, I mean, the reality is uh, uh, no one's struggling more than Nikki Haley right now uh, with the, her current task at hand. And dare I say, Mitch McConnell's uh, schedule uh, last week after his moment at the podium uh, was a little more robust than what she's been able to pull off in this campaign. So I, I get it. Everybody's got it. It's, it's campaign season. Everybody's looking for a hook and a way to try to get ahead. But uh,
1: good luck with your message. What people don't realize is McConnell world when they want to go at you, yeah, they, they, don't, they don't mess around. Sorry, uh, Scott, appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Thank you.
0: So this new threat from Russia, senior official there says, "quote There simply wouldn't be any other solution outside of using a nuclear weapon if Ukraine's counteroffensive succeeds." What Dmitry Medvedev said about what he calls Russian land next. Welcome back. Dmitry Medvedev, the deputy chairman of Russia's Security Council, says Russia may have to use nuclear weapons if Ukraine's counteroffensive is successful and ends with, quote, part of our land being taken away. These comments come as the counteroffensive appears to be entering a new, more aggressive phase. For the first time, Ukrainian forces have reached one of Russia's long-stretching dragon teeth. That's what it's called, defensive lines. The concrete anti-tank fortifications one example of the deeply layered defenses Russia has developed to slow any attempt to take back territory in southern Ukraine. With us now is CNN military analyst, former member of the Joint Chief of Staff, Joint Staff, I should say, the Pentagon and former deputy director for training at the NSA, retired Colonel Cedric Clayton. Colonel Layton, before we get to what we just showed people, what's your reaction to hearing what Dmitry Medvedev said?
23: Well, I think it's very concerning, Poppy, and good morning to you. You know, one of the things that uh, the Russians are looking at is the fact that uh, they annexed, officially annexed, all this territory right here that uh, the Russians have occupied. Uh, so what that could mean is that when you look at all the different uh, possible paths, if the Ukrainians come in this way and take this territory, the threat from Medvedev is that they would potentially use tactical nuclear weapons weapons. Uh, that, of course, would be a game changer in a case like this. Colonel Aiden, can you walk people through, you know, Dragon's Teeth? It sounds like
1: a, a buzzy type of title, but I think when you go into what that actually means, it underscores why this is such a slog, why this is such a complex moment in the counteroffensive.
23: What, what, what does that actually mean? So, Phil, what that really means is when you look at all the different uh, places that the Ukrainians are moving in, so if they uh, come in here, you see the very little territorial gains made by the Ukrainians in all these areas right here. And the reason for that is, uh, like you mentioned, the dragon's teeth. These are concrete barriers filled with not only concrete, but rebar. And uh, what they do is they actually, uh, you know, are barriers. Uh, And as you can see, here you know you look you see the uh, right in front of us you see uh, the dragon's teeth and as uh, the vehicle the infantry fighting vehicle is moving forward it is actually trying to get into a trench uh, and it's moving through that trench it's an extremely vulnerable point right here Mm -hmm. but think of this hundreds of miles of this kind of stuff Uh, we've got a 600 mile long front right here and all of this is area that is defended in one way or another some of it more heavily than other areas Uh, But the basic idea is that at every step of the way, there is some kind of defensive area. And it's especially true in places like Crimea. And it's also true in parts of the Eastern Front around Bakhmut. So this is a very significant area uh, for the Russians to try to hold. And, of course, for the Ukrainians to try to regain.
0: The drone attacks, we showed one in the last hour inside Russia. There was that one uh, more, most recently uh, in Moscow. What do they tell you? What do we know about them?
23: So these are very important, Poppy. Uh, you know, you look at uh, two different areas. You're, you know, really close to uh, the Ukrainian border. You have the town of Taganrog, uh which was attacked by a drone. Not a big surprise. Mm-hmm. It's very close to the Ukrainian border. Uh, but Moscow, right. that is about... Uh, 800 kilometers uh, away from uh, the Ukrainian border, so a, a bit over almost 500 miles. Uh, the Ukrainian drones uh, that are probably being used uh, are something like this. This is a UJ 22 model attack drone built by the Ukrainians. Uh, they are able to use this. It has the range to go from Ukraine to Moscow, and uh, it has potential payloads of weapons that could potentially cause the damage that we saw at that high rise in Moscow. Uh, So these are very, very important weapons for the Ukrainians to use. It's part of the Ukrainians' asymmetric war effort. And that makes a really big difference because, uh, you know, on the one side you have the drones. On the other side you have what the Russians could do against those drones. And that includes uh, the area of electronic warfare. So they can jam uh, the drone, uh, not only the radars, but the data links for the drone. Mm. It can serve as a deception move. And it can also potentially use directed energy weapons against um, uh, drones uh, like this one. So these are, th- these are things that are critically important uh, when it comes to this kind of warfare. But what Ukraine is doing is it's changing the face of warfare in the air and actually in the- on the sea as well.
1: Before we let you go, there was, there was a headline that caught my attention. A Polish prime minister saying that 100 Wagner mercenaries were headed towards the Polish border. How concerning is this?
23: It's very concerning, Phil. And one of the key things to keep in mind is this area here, known as the Suvaiki Gap. Uh, this 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 area right between uh, Belarus and this Russian enclave of Kaliningrad. Uh, that enclave is a vestige of World War II. And what the Wagner forces are doing uh, is they're potentially uh, coming into this area right here, which is the primary communications and logistics link for uh, the Russian forces, because this here is the base for the Russian Baltic Sea Fleet. And that is one of the key areas. That's one of the reasons that the Russians want to keep this area. And one of the reasons, of course, uh, that the Wagner Group could potentially uh, try to use this area to cut off everything uh, from NATO right here. These are all NATO countries, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, as well as, of course, Poland.
0: OK. Colonel Layton, thank you, as always.
23: You bet. One of the nation's biggest and oldest trucking
1: companies, it's shutting down what it means for its 30,000 employees and their customers. Next.
0: Also, Madonna is speaking out after that serious infection that left her in the ICU, what she posted next. So Yellow, which is one of the oldest and biggest American trucking companies, will halt operations after 99 years in business. This comes after a long battle with the union over missed pension and health benefit payments. 30,000 workers will be laid off as a result of the shutdown. The company still owes the federal government upwards of $700 million for a pandemic-era loan. That's according to its most recent quarterly report. The Teamsters president says, quote, Yellow has historically proven that it could not manage itself. Despite billions of dollars in worker concessions and hundreds of millions of dollars in bailout funding from the government, we're waiting to hear from the company itself. They are expected to file for bankruptcy in the coming days.
1: Also this morning, more than 50 million Americans are under heat alerts. But El Paso is finally seeing a bit of relief after its record streak of 44 straight days of temperature stopping 100 degrees. The highest temperature hit 111 degrees on July 19th. It was around 97 degrees there Sunday. In Phoenix... Well, not so fortunate just yet. It hit a high of 115 degrees on Saturday. The city has suffered through 31 consecutive days of temperatures above 110. That's insane. 110 degrees. Yeah. Forecasters say more than 140 heat records could be broken or tied just this week.
0: We also have an update on Madonna. She says she's lucky to be alive after a month, a month after she was hospitalized in the ICU for a serious bacterial infection. Here's what she posted on Instagram. Love from family and friends is the best medicine. As a mother, you can really get caught up in the needs of your children and the seemingly endless giving. But when the chips were down, my children really showed up for me. She continued, thank you to all my angels who protected me and let me stay to finish doing my work. Her celebration tour that was scheduled to begin this month in Vancouver has been postponed until October. We're just glad we have an update and she's doing sounds like pretty well.
1: Well, a New Jersey school district will pay $1.9 million to the family of a 12-year-old girl who died by suicide after she was bullied at the school. Her parents, uh, $9.1 million, sorry, her parents uh, will talk about the impact of the settlement coming up next.
0: More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
1: A wake-up call for schools. That's what the mother of Mallory Grossman calls it. A New, York, a New Jersey school district will pay $9.1 million to the family of a preteen girl who died by suicide after she was bullied at school. Diane and Seth Grossman sued Rockaway Township School District in 2018, claiming that, despite repeated complaints, school administrators did not do enough to prevent their daughter's death. 12-year-old Mallory Grossman took her own life in June 2017 after being bullied in school and cyberbullied by classmates through text and Snapchat messages according mm-hmm. to the lawsuit.
0: In 2017, the school district said in a statement that the allegations that, uh, that the district ignored the Grossman family and failed to address bullying in general is categorically false. We've reached out to that school district for comment again after the settlement. and We haven't heard back. An attorney for the Grossman family told CNN it is the largest bullying settlement in New Jersey's state history. Well, joining us now, the mother and father of Mallory, Diane and Seth Grossman, also with us, their attorney, Bruce Nagel. Diane and Seth, thank you very much. Um, You are living every parent's worst nightmare and our hearts are with you this morning. Diane, let me begin with you. What do you want people to know? I know this settlement for you is not about money. It's about what happened to your girl.
24: I think that it's time for the schools to understand that we have an epidemic on our hands. I think it's time for the schools to start to enforce their policies. And if they don't have policies, now's the time to write those policies. This is a wake up call for all school systems.
0: Can you, what, what do you mean those policies? What, what, what do you think would have made meaningful change for Mallory?
24: I think that there is an easy way to start making changes. The first thing that any school system can do, particularly middle school, is they can remove the cell phones. Mm. It's not necessary for the kids to be walking around with cell phones in their hands or their back pockets, especially during the school day. Um, I think that we have an unhealthy relationship with technology. And I think that the schools, by allowing the cell phones at school during the day, whether they allow access to social media or not, you know, a video can be taken and shared hundreds of millions of times, whereas a story of a kid falling or getting hurt um, can only be mm-hmm. told. And I think the the influencers that the kids follow encourage this type of behavior. So I, I think removing the cell phones is the first step. Um, and I also think that schools need a parent's bill of rights. Parents mm-hmm. need to know how to report what's going on, and that's the foundation of Mallory's Law that we helped fund and find. Um, I also think that you have to have a policy. You know, New Jersey does have a New Jersey HIB, which stands for Harassment, Intimidation, and Bullying Act, but I think that we need more. There needs to be consequences in place. Children need to be able to predict the consequences of their behavior, and I think our lawsuit sets the stage for that.
1: Can I just for people who weren't following the story, uh, when it, uh, when everything happened, the tragedy happened, and then uh, your efforts here, how, long, how far in advance did the school know what was happening? What, what was the interaction between you guys and the school uh, before this all transpired?
24: Well, we started seeing evidence of it towards the end of fifth grade. So in September of sixth grade, which would have been September of 2016, we started reporting in writing to the guidance counselors, her teachers. So we started really early on pointing out some of the things that would be defined as bullying. Um, and we didn't ask the school at that time to really define it. What we asked them to do is make the behavior stop. And that I think is the most important. You know, schools get caught up is it bullying? Is it not bullying? And our family, we don't care what you call it. We just want the teasing, the harassment, the intimidation, the exclusion. We wanted all of that behavior to stop. And their solution was to isolate Mallory Fuller um, more and then put her in the guidance counselor. Mm -hmm. I don't know any sixth grader that wants to sit with their guidance counselor to have lunch. That wasn't a solution. Yeah. Seth, can you tell us
0: a little bit about Mallory? We see all these beautiful pictures of her with you. I think I saw her in gymnastics leotards, um, what did she love and what was she like?
19: Oh, wow. She was great. Um, she's definitely a lover of the outdoors. Um, she definitely liked sports, uh, cheer and, and gymnastics and she excelled at it. Um, it was kind of her safe place. It was something that she was, she was very good at. Um, she was definitely a philanthropic child for even a 12 year old, just some of the things she would do. I don't, I don't know where she found it from or got it from, but, um, she definitely liked to help other kids. Um, she raised a lot of money for Camp Good Days, which is um, a place where kids with cancer can go um, mm. in the summertime to kind of escape everything that's going on in their lives, to give them some sense of normalcy. So she was very uh, empathetic as far as that goes, and she really um, she, she made her mark in her, her, her short 12 years. So, Yeah. Wow.
0: What a child. Bruce, yeah. you know,
19: we, we
1: hear— She really was. It's, uh, it's, it's heartbreaking, and also— somebody to accomplish that in 12 years. It says a lot about their daughter. But also, I think this also says a lot about what uh, Mallory will be remembered for, to some degree, uh, or the legacy. And that's why I want to ask you, do you feel like, Bruce, since this is, I think, by your account, the largest uh, settlement in history related to, that you're aware of, related to this specific issue, is this
25: precedent? Is this something that other will will kind of set the stage for more of this to come? Well, obviously, we want it to end. uh, But... This case and this settlement, the the size of the settlement, should send a wake-up call and a signal and a strong signal to every school in the country that bullying is a major, major problem and our children need to be protected. They need to understand that this little cell phone is a lethal weapon in the hands of a bullying uh, student. It's got to be stopped and it's not difficult to stop it.
0: Did you press for an admission of accountability in the settlement?
25: The, the answer is yes, but that's not something that any school district will do.
0: Well, in the New York Times piece, you know, they talked about one school district in a different case that did. And that was so rare. That's what got me thinking.
25: It, it, it was ex- it was extremely rare. The admission in this case is nine point one million dollars. It's the highest amount paid to our knowledge in the country in a bullying case. And that speaks volumes with regard to the admission and the responsibility of the schools. Um,
1: Diane, you know, before we let you go, what do you hope? Uh, not just for kind of the broader message to schools uh, and the wake-up call, but this kind of says about Mallory or or, uh, adds to Mallory's legacy going forward?
24: I think for us as a family, um, we stuck it out. You know, we hung in there from the minute that Mallory passed away. um, We hit the ground running and we started um, a nonprofit. Um, I traveled to schools. I tell Mallory's story. Um, it, it's not a PowerPoint, it's a heartfelt message. And, you know, if the schools don't get it, then maybe the parents and the kids will. You know, it's, it's not so hard to just be nice to someone. Even if someone doesn't like you or you don't wanna be friends with them, it really isn't that difficult to just leave them alone. And mm-hmm. I think in this situation, that was that's Mallory's story is that she's telling all of the kids And particularly the kids that are being bullied, that, you know, you do have people in your life that love you and self-harm is no answer to any issue that you're having. And I hope that Mallory's story gives the children that are being bullied or the parents that um, of those children, that it gives them a little bit of hope. And I just hope that we continue to be, you know, the parents that we are and continue to share our story and lend our voice to this epidemic. Yeah.
0: And as we said at the top, you are in our heart. Thank you for being with us and sharing about Mallory and your work this morning. Thank you for having us, Diane, Seth, and Bruce.
24: Thank you. If you know
0: anyone who's grappling uh, with suicidal thoughts, please call 988 to reach the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It provides free and confidential support 24 hours a day, seven days a week for people in crisis or distress. You can also call that number to talk to someone about how you can help a person in crisis. We'll be right back all right good morning everyone it is the top of the hour we're so glad you're with us on this monday and a busy one already
1: new polling new arraignment
0: polls 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 and they all say the same thing
1: that's the most important part. Because one poll, do not focus on one poll. Because I'm going to die on this hill. <laughs> it's
0: You're a good right. <laughs> hill to die on. We'll get to that in a moment. The politics of this. But to the law, this morning, a second Trump employee is scheduled to be arraigned in the classified documents probe. As the former president says, he did not direct anyone to delete security footage at Mar-a-Lago.
1: And will thousands of small-dollar donors to Trump's political action committee care at all that their money is being spent on legal fees? We're learning the PAC, Save America, has already spent million this year on those legal fees. That's already more than double what it spent last year. Just a reminder, it's July.
0: And there's a giant X atop Twitter's headquarters. Look at that. Elon Musk's rebranding efforts have now caught the attention of San Francisco officials who say they are investigating whether the sign is a permit violation. This hour of CNN this morning starts now. This morning, the property manager who allegedly said the boss wanted surveillance video servers deleted at Mar-a-Lago will be in a Miami courtroom. He'll answer to four criminal charges. Carlos de Oliveira is the third person indicted in the classified documents case alongside former President Donald Trump and his valet, Walt Nauta. Prosecutors say de Oliveira met up with Nauta in June of last year to scope out the surveillance cameras around the storage room where documents were moved in and out of. They say that de Oliveira then asked a different employee, quote, what are we going to do about the boss's request to delete footage? This comes as another Mar-a-Lago employee, UCL Tavares, who oversaw those surveillance cameras, we've learned, previously received a target letter from federal prosecutors. Sources tell CNN Tavares had met with investigators since the initial indictment. But what's not clear is whether he's cooperating with prosecutors or not. And We should be very clear he has not been charged.
1: It's true. We're also following the details in other Trump investigations, and there are many. The special counsel's office gets ready to meet with another key witness in the fake electors scheme. And in Georgia, the district attorney says that she'll decide whether to charge anyone for the efforts by Trump and his allies to overturn the 2020 election there by September 1st. We'll get to those new threads in a second. But first, let's go to CNN's Randy Kay. She's outside the Florida courthouse in Miami where the property manager uh, will be charged or will be arraigned. Uh, Randy, what are the expectations today?
3: Good morning, Phil. Well, what we're seeing now is uh, that he is really caught up, apparently, in this alleged plot to uh, try and destroy security camera footage uh, of Mar-a-Lago, which would have shown these uh, boxes of documents, some of them classified. Uh, So uh, we are waiting for him to appear here in court this morning. The official charges uh, are pretty serious. He's facing conspiracy to obstruct justice, false statements that were made, and as well as two counts of concealing or destroying an object. Uh, Now, we know he's going to appear here in court with his lawyer, John Irving. That is a Washington, D.C.-based attorney. He will need a Florida-based attorney in order to enter a plea. If he doesn't have a Florida attorney this morning, uh, his case could be delayed. And, of course, uh, all eyes are watching that because uh, that could weigh into whether or not uh, Donald Trump could go to trial in this case before election. So, certainly, uh, that is being closely watched. But also, uh, as you mentioned, at the center of these new allegations, is this IT worker from Mar-a-Lago named UCL Tavares. What we understand from sources is that uh, he was uh, working with prosecutors, speaking with the FBI and the investigators. And apparently some of these new allegations against Donald Trump were based at least in part, Phil, from some of this information coming from UCL Tavares, this IT worker. So now a fourth employee identified and all in in this uh, alleged plot to try and get rid of the security camera footage. Phil?
1: All right, Randy Kaye, thank you. Well, also this morning, the Georgia probe investigating efforts by Donald Trump and his allies to overturn Georgia's 2020 presidential election result could be nearing its end. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis telling CNN affiliate WXIA that any announcement of an indictment would happen before September 1st.
2: Some people may not be happy with the decisions that I was making, and sometimes when people are unhappy, they act in a way that could create harm. The work is accomplished, I and mean, we've been working for two and a half years, and we're ready to go.
1: And Willis has previously signaled that she would make any charging announcements between July 31st and the end of August, meaning that they could come any day. And this comes <laughs> after a judge scheduled an August 10th hearing on the Trump team's motion to disqualify Willis from the case and toss much of the evidence she has collected. Trump's team is also trying to remove another judge in Fulton County from presiding over that case.
0: We're also waiting for another potential federal indictment against former President Trump over efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Former New York City Police Commissioner and Trump ally Bernie Carrick will meet with Special Counsel Jack Smith in a matter of days. Carrick worked alongside Rudy Giuliani in the weeks after the 2020 election to try to search for evidence of fraud that could have shifted the election in Trump's favor. Carrick's attorney tells CNN he's going to speak to Jack Smith and his team of prosecutors about the Trump team's unfounded claims of voter fraud. Earlier this month, you'll remember, Carrick turned over lots of documents about those claims after previously shielding some of them from Congress and federal investigators on the grounds of attorney-client privilege.
1: So you may have noticed in the process of these six and a half minutes we spent walking through all of the different elements of this, the president has a lot of legal issues, and that also means he has to spend a lot of money. His political action committee has to spend it. I should be very clear on that. More than $40 million on legal fees alone for the former president and his associates this year alone, according to a source familiar with the matter. That's more than double what it spent last year. Well, the PAC, which raises most of its funds through small-dollar donations from Trump supporters, is expected to report to the FEC this morning as the former president's legal battles, as we noted, continue to mount. CNN's Kristen Holmes is live in Washington this morning. Kristen, I think my biggest question is, are they going to have a cash problem at some point mm. during the campaign? Right? This is a lot of money, uh, and I, I know they're trying to set up a separate legal entity. Um, are, is this problematic for them from a mechanics uh, organizational perspective financially?
14: It certainly seems like it could be, Phil. And obviously, you know, as you're laying out step after step, all of these legal battles, those cost money. And as you said, they've spent $40 million so far this year. It is only July, the entirety of last year, they spent $16 million on these legal fees. And again, it is not just Donald Trump. It is all of these associates, these former and current aides, employees, anyone who is wrapped up in these investigations that his team deemed worthy to actually pay for those attorney fees. And there are a lot of them. You mentioned that Mar-a-Lago case. Both of those co-defendants are represented by lawyers who have received an enormous amount of money from that Save America PAC. And again, it's certainly looks like this could lead to a huge money problem here. And that is in part why we are understanding that Trump's team is creating this legal defense fund. Now, this will not cover any of Trump's legal fees, but it will cover some of those associate fees, those outside witnesses. Unclear exactly how big the umbrella of this legal defense fund is going to be, but it is clearly something they are taking into account right now as they are hemorrhaging money for these legal fees. Again, $40 Forty million dollars, and it is just July, and they are not wrapping up. These legal issues are not wrapping up anytime soon. And, In fact, they seem to just be continuing and possibly mounting, getting worse.
1: Yeah, if you want to, like forty million, look at whatever other candidate and their packs have raised, super packs have raised. Forty million is a lot of money. Kristen Holmes, great reporting. Thank you.
0: Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' presidential campaign is seizing on this news. His campaign communication director wrote this in a statement: "Trump has spent over 60 million dollars this year on two things: falsely attacking DeSantis and paying his own legal fees, not a cent on defeating Joe Biden. Governor DeSantis's sole focus, by contrast, has been campaigning for this country's future, defeating Biden, and reversing the decline of America." Close quote. DeSantis also responded himself.
7: When he hits me with the the, uh, juvenile insults, I think that helps me. I don't think voters like that. I think they look at it and they realize, like, you know what, that's not effective. And so I don't think it's effective, so I actually don't mind it at all. Um, I think it's just a reminder uh, why there's so many millions of voters who will never vote for him going forward.
0: Later today, DeSantis is going to hold a news conference, a press conference, focusing on his economic plan trying to turn around those slipping poll numbers. Steve Contorno follows him very closely. He joins us in Rochester, New Hampshire for more. He's talking more to the press. He's doing interviews with press outlets that he never talked to before. And now he's holding a press conference on the economy. I think maybe a question or two might be about how dominant Trump is in the polls.
26: That's right, Poppy. And DeSantis is up here really trying to put the last couple of weeks of the campaign behind him. There has been so much focus on his staff cuts and this attempt at a reset of his campaign amid his stalling poll numbers. He wants to get back to introducing himself to voters, having one-on-one conversations with them, and really making the case that he is the best person to represent the party in 2024. Over the weekend, he had a lot of intimate gatherings. Like you said, there's a lot more media that's given access to him lately. And today, he will give an economic speech, which is really something we haven't heard him talk much about. He's, he's so well known for being a culture warrior and his so-called war on woke, but we haven't so much seen him talk about these kind of kitchen table issues. He's going to do that later today where he's going to give his economic policy speech. Uh, this is an issue obviously Republicans six months ago thought it was one that they were going to win on. However, with inflation cooling and the economy seeming to be doing better, Democrats are feeling much better about that, their odds on that issue going forward. And DeSantis, it'll be interested to see how he makes the case that not only the country needs to go in a different direction, but that he is better than Trump to lead on this issue, Poppy,
0: Intorno, thanks for the reporting.
1: I mean, my questions would be about tax policy at the press I conference. know
0: they were, but you're here, not there, so you can't even ask him.
1: Contorno looks really good for a campaign trail, by, <laughs> by the way. Very put together for a campaign correspondence. very unsettling to me. <laughs> great reporting, as always, from Steve. Uh, also, President Biden publicly acknowledging the seventh grandchild on a Friday at about 5 p.m. and describing the situation as a, quote, family matter. Reaction to that statement coming up ahead.
0: More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
1: Well, this morning we have new polling showing former President Trump dominating his rivals in the Republican primary field. The latest New York Times-Siena College poll shows him way out in front, 54 percent. That's 17 points more than his nearest challenger, Ron DeSantis. Uh, Trump has remained consistent at 54 percent in the last few weeks. But what is significant is how much DeSantis has slipped since mid-July. A Quinnipiac poll earlier this month had him polling at 25 percent. A Monmouth poll had him at 22 percent. Um, and it's been dropping. Trump has been rising. <laughs> Joining us now, White House correspondent at Bloomberg News, Akela Gardner, also a Buckeye. Get excited, Poppy. And senior <laughs> political analyst and White House correspondent at PBS NewsHour. She's cool, too. Uh, Laura Barone Lopez, one of the best in the business. Uh, Laura, I, I want to start with you uh, on kind of the, I think we have similar views in terms of one poll does not make everything. It's the consistency of these numbers and the kind of, at some point we have to stop, repeating over and over again, it's early, it's early, it's early. Like We're getting there at this point. What is, what's your read in terms of the current state of the race?
18: Look, Trump has a really strong grip on the Republican base. And even a recent PBS NPR Maris poll that we just had come out on Friday, said the same exact thing, which is that 58% of Republicans say that despite uh, his legal peril, despite all of these indictments that are piling up, they still Mm -hmm. are supporting him over other GOP candidates. And So right now, I mean, he's the one that the GOP base wants and Ron DeSantis appears to be the second one that consistently is highest in polls, but hasn't been able to convince voters, either because he's more focused on policy and they want more emotions, uh, which is what we've heard from voters saying that they really are just still attached to Trump and his ideologies and his uh, the, the messaging that he's bringing, which is essentially one of grievance and just all around his legal peril and all around um, election denialism. But but that's what they're going for right now rather than Ron DeSantis. The uh, economic speech today, Akela, that uh, DeSantis
0: is going to give is going to focus on the economy and largely go after Biden not go after Trump. I mean, the extent to which he's gone after Trump has been like, hey, he spent $20 million, you know, sort of going after me, attacking me. That's as far as he will go. But do you have any indication that Republican primary voters are thinking about electability in in the general election? Because that's what DeSantis is banking this whole thing on.
27: Absolutely. I think electability is top of mind here. And I think this speech today comes at a very crucial time in his campaign. We've seen back-to-back bad headlines for DeSantis. His campaign is in a cash crunch. He's laid off now two rounds of layoffs for his staff. And donors have been telling him they want him to focus on more moderate issues. He became popular in Florida because of his culture wars, but we really haven't seen him focus on these kitchen table issues. And the economy is top of mind for voters. It has been, and it will continue to be. And he really needs to prove himself on these issues to continue in this race.
1: Hey, Laura, uh, switching over to the Democratic side, um, you know, our, our, our Friend of the of all of us, J. mart Jonathan Martin at the New York Times had a column. Or sorry, now he's at the Politico. Um, had a column in Politico about uh, the potential for a another Democrat hopping into the race to challenge the incumbent mm-hmm. President Joe Biden. Uh, Dean Phillips, Congressman from Minnesota. Um, I have thoughts on this, but I am intrigued by yours in terms of who Dean Phillips is, how he's thought of uh, inside the House Republican Caucus or House Democratic Caucus. Well,
18: I- well, uh, I know that we both know who Dean Phillips is, Phil, because we've covered Congress. I've talked to Dean Phillips a number of times, but I mentioned his name to a relative who does not live anywhere near D.C., and they said, who, yesterday? Um, I don't think that he has any name recognition outside of D.C. Among the Democratic caucus, he is certainly respected and they feel as though he's a very serious lawmaker for the short time that he's been in Congress. He's someone that helped make their majority uh, a few years ago when they were in the majority in the House. But a lot of Democrats that I talk to are more concerned about uh, third-party candidates versus someone challenging Joe Biden within the primary. They're concerned about candidates like Cornell West mm. and having a Jill Stein effect uh, similar to uh, 2016 when we saw that that really made the big difference in those key swing states and ultimately contributed to Hillary Clinton's loss.
0: Kayla, look, um, looking at it more broadly, not about Ken Dean-Phillips, win a nomination if he were to go up against Biden. But about the fact that here you have him, a former businessman from Minnesota term politician who has spoken out against Biden uh, on a number of things. This isn't new. I wasn't shocked when I when I saw this. But you have him. You have Joe Manchin. You have whatever no labels is going to do. What does this all combined mean for Biden?
27: Yeah, I certainly agree with Laura that the bigger issue is these third-party candidates. But the fact that a sitting lawmaker would challenge President Biden is certainly significant. It would signal a breakdown in the Democratic Party, the fact that someone would feel comfortable enough to challenge the president. And what Dean Phillips is bringing up here is something that I hear from voters a lot, which is there's still hesitation about Biden because of his age. Mm -hmm. And there's still voters who are frankly waiting to see who else is going to get in this race.
1: Hey, Laura, uh, if you were working on Friday at about 5 p.m. and you thought your day was about to end, uh, it didn't because the White House released a statement to People magazine acknowledging for the first time or saying that the president was acknowledging for the first time his seventh grandchild, Hunter Biden's child. Mm. Um, I, I was... The timing t- says a lot about this, right? If For those who maybe don't live in our world, if you're dropping something at 5 p.m. on a Friday, you're doing that intentionally uh, for people not to pay a lot of attention to it. Why? Why, why did they decide to, to go that route?
18: I think because ultimately, Phil, the White House had to address this. Uh, Reporters had been asking White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre about whether or not the president was going to acknowledge this seventh grandchild of his. He's someone who prides himself on being a family man, someone who often used Amtrak to get back to Wilmington, Delaware, to be with his family. Uh, He often talks about his grandchildren and... They ultimately needed to acknowledge this, and they hadn't done so so far. And as you said, they clearly did it on a Friday evening in order to— try to bury it a little bit, make sure it didn't get all of this wide attention that it normally would if it were released earlier in the day, in the middle of the week. Uh, but this was something that he was going to have to address, especially more and more as he's out on the campaign trail. And this is how they ultimately decided to handle it. Now, whether or not it goes away is a big question, because we know that Republicans are going to continue to attack the president on this very issue. Laura Baron lopez Akila Gardner, thank you both.
0: What, well, <laughs> what feels sorry, like a summer cold? Panel. I know they're great. They were great. <laughs> what feels best. like a summer cold could actually be COVID, not again, but yes, what experts are saying. And how extreme heat may actually be partly responsible for this uptick in COVID cases. That's next.
1: I'm going to do this one. Okay. In the city of San Francisco, investigating Elon Musk for a new X sign above Twitter's headquarters. Sorry if you live across the street from that. We will fill you in on the complaint against Musk coming up. There's a chance your summer cold could actually be COVID-19. Over the last week, hospitalizations and emergency visits have increased, and experts say it could be part of a late-summer coronavirus surge, though the wave won't be nearly as severe or prolonged as last summer. Senior medical correspondent Meg Durrell is here. Um, All right, I don't really like reading that or reading about that, but what is the latest data?
28: Yeah, so surge might be too strong of a term. If you look at these CDC COVID indicators, hospitalizations, uh, emergency department visits, test positivity levels, and wastewater levels, that's actually the virus and levels of wastewater, you can see all of those are up between 10 to 20 percent over the last week of data. What's really important to put into context, though, is that is off of the lowest base we've seen since the beginning of the pandemic. And so if you look at wastewater level data from Biobot, which is one of the companies that tracks these things, you can see just there at the end that, that little blue uptick is the sort of beginning of a potential surge we're talking about, and experts say even in these data and wastewater levels, this is a leading indicator. And they're even starting to see that slow and perhaps even start to level off. So okay. we don't know if this is really going to become something I feel
17: like we're both right? Now. <laughs> we are.
28: Why? Why? And how does the heat? Yeah, the heat does seem to potentially have an effect on COVID cycles. We've seen this in previous summers where there has been a bump in cases. And it's perhaps because it's so hot, people are driven inside. They're closer together in the AC and perhaps they're spreading COVID. So that could be one thing. People, of course, are traveling a lot more right now. And also, you know, a lot of us haven't had a booster lately, uh, which makes sense. So we don't have as much immunity built up, particularly to infection. And maybe a lot of us haven't had COVID recently. And so that sort of immunity isn't there as well.
1: So uh, I've got four kids, which means I get literally everything, everything. that's going around. <laughs> uh, is Are there other things? Is it just COVID right now? Or is there other things that people are...
28: There are other things going around. Um, data from BioFire, which is a, a testing company, show that you're actually more likely to have rhinovirus if you've got a cold. That's one of the common cold-causing viruses. Coronavirus is rising to kind of intersect with that. But also adenovirus, norovirus, and rotavirus uh, are also at higher levels than they were at this time last year, according to CDC data. Norovirus and rotavirus are really not fun. Things to get they cause GI symptoms, so those things are circulating. So there's enough going around that you really don't want to be sick with anything.
1: Good luck, every
0: parent out there with little kids who don't (laughs) wash their hands.
1: Always helpful. Yeah, wash your hands. There you you go. Right. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thanks.
0: This morning, new developments in Twitter's rebrand. Elon Musk has put a giant X on top of the company's San Francisco headquarters, triggering a city investigation. So according to this new complaint, representatives for the city of San Francisco have visited the headquarters twice since Friday. They've issued a notice of violation alleging the flashing sign now on top of the building went up without a permit. In a statement to The Washington Post, a spokesperson for the city's Department of Buildings said to ensure consistency with the historic nature of the building and ensure the new additions are safely attached to the sign. The city requires a permit. CNN has reached out to the city and X for comment. But joining us now, CNN senior media analyst and Axios senior media reporter Sarah Fisher. I don't know. Doesn't seem like San Francisco is going to make any of this very easy for Elon Musk. But he is, content, he is, he is set on staying there. He's not going to
5: move it like they moved Tesla
0: headquarters.
5: No, he is not, which comes as a surprise, Poppy, because you recall when he moved Tesla's headquarters to Austin, he had some not very nice things to say about operating business in the state of California and in San Francisco. But you could see why San Francisco is frustrated with this. You can't just come and erect a major sign with connecti- uh, connectivity to electricity and not inform pedestrians crossing the street underneath it, that there's construction going on. So I can see why they are frustrated. And then largely speaking, there have been issues with Twitter in San Francisco for months now, whether it's Elon Musk refusing to pay rent, not being a very fair member of the city and trying to advocate for reform. So I can see why they are frustrated with Musk. You
1: know, Sarah, the, uh, there's a lot going on uh, with Elon Musk and X, uh, to say the least. But we're also learning, you know, the New York Times reported and now the Center for Countering Digital Hate has confirmed that Elon Musk over the last year threatened legal action uh, against uh, tech competitors. Uh, obviously, employees, people involved with Twitter. He's also taking aim at an organization that studies hate speech. What do you know about this?
5: Yes, so the Center for Countering Hate is a nonprofit, and they put out a lot of research that shows how hate speech has evolved on the platform and other platforms. But particularly, they have put out a lot of data about hate speech under Elon Musk on Twitter. And this has been something that has irked Elon Musk for a long time, in part because he doesn't believe that third-party researchers know what's happening on the platform better than he does. You know, my argument would be Elon Musk just started to put— Twitter's API behind a paywall. So if you want people to be able to research and get the access to the data in a fair way, why don't you make it free? But this is part of a larger problem for Elon Musk and Twitter, right? He's trying to go after people who are researching the platform for hate instead of trying to actually tackle the issues with hate speech And that, as we've spoken about on this show, is a larger business problem for the company.
0: One of the other pieces of reporting from The Times that I think is so interesting is that there was a deal made back in June for the Pentagon to buy some Starlink connectivity in Ukraine. Explain to people what Starlink is, why it has been so vital for Ukraine in this war uh, that Russia has waged, and what it would mean for the Pentagon to have this ownership.
5: Yes. Massive report out from the New York Times. Starlink is an Internet platform that allows people to get access to online through satellites. And it's pretty revolutionary because for a long time, Poppy, that wasn't a very reliable way to get Internet access. Elon Musk owns Starlink. That's his company. And in February 2022, when the war broke out, Ukraine urged Elon Musk to bring Starlink to Ukraine, and to his credit, Elon Musk moved very quickly. And I will say this, without Starlink, Ukraine would not have a huge critical advantage of connectivity in this war. The challenge, though, Poppy, is that Elon Musk has discretion over where he puts these satellites. And the Pentagon is growing concern that if Ukraine is so reliant on this private company, Starlink, and Elon Musk has the ability to say no to some of the requests or move satellites— then that would put Ukraine and thus our national security in a pretty perilous situation. So what the New York Times reported is that the Pentagon is trying to buy some of these satellites from Starlink so that it can unilaterally ensure that the connectivity remains in Ukraine and that Elon Musk can't sort of pull the rug out from underneath them. I will say, though, Poppy, for all of the saga and the drama that we talk about with Elon Musk, Mm -hmm. this is a very good example of ways that his innovations have helped to make the world better. Yeah, it certainly is. It's a great point.
1: Hey, Sarah, can I ask, if you lived across the street from Twitter headquarters and you had a window and it was nighttime and a massive glowing X was blinking in your face. Nightlight. What would you? Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, I was going (laughs) to. What would your response be?
5: Well, I mean, a lot of people would file complaints. That's the first and foremost problem. (coughs) Second of all, there's also noise complaints anytime that you're erecting something like this. But this is actually not so much of a pedestrian, uh, excuse me, like a you know, regular people living in this area. This is more of the downtown area. There's a lot of sort of work buildings. So I don't know that that's as much of the problem. I think the general uh, frustration from the city is that Elon Musk continues to act unilaterally without asking for permits or permission. And they just want to make sure that that gets reined in. Nightlight. She, she just like
1: knows all everything. Yeah, it's, it's, it's also true. frustrating and awesome at the same the time. The drama never ends. <laughs> and I know. Your beat is certainly a beat where the drama never ends. Sarah Fisher, great as always to have you. Thanks.
5: Thank you.
1: Well, more than 10 players have been sidelined at the World Cup with ACL injuries. What's behind that sudden increase? Sanjay Gupta reports next.
0: So, the U.S. Women's World Cup soccer team takes on Portugal tomorrow morning, 3 a.m. Eastern, for their last game in the group stage. But teams from around the world, including the U.S., have had to adapt their strategies after some of their top players in the game have suffered the same injury. CNN's Chief Medical Correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, takes a look into why ACL injuries have been plaguing female athletes and what players can do to reduce their risk.
19: This has been able to put in play.
29: North Carolina Courage midfielder, Meredith Speck, started the season off on the right foot. But like so many other professional players you've been hearing about, an injury brought it to a halt. Now, what will surprise you is that for nearly all these women, it's been the same injury, and many have been going through what you're about to see with Meredith.
20: It's a weird situation, even though, you know, it's a surgery and it's nine months of your career. Like, it is a big deal.
29: Today, Speck is getting her anterior cruciate ligament, or ACL, repaired. You've probably heard that term before, but let me show you. It's this ligament right here. It runs diagonally in your knee, from the outside of your femur to the inside of your tibia it's what helps players do this lateral movement and it's an injury now that has become almost synonymous with soccer but remarkably more so among women 10 players or so yes are, are out of the World Cup because of these ACL injuries yes. that's a pretty staggering number does that surprise you
30: Yes, uh, but we do know that women's risk is higher. So the NCAA data indicates that the risk for women is about three to four-fold her male counterpart. It's, it's, it's great. The way Holly
29: Silvers-Grinelli is the chair of Major League Soccer's Medical Assessment Research Committee. And this is a disparity she's been trying to draw attention to for decades.
30: What is going on? We started looking at this data literally 23 years ago. We had determined that there's anatomic risk factors, there's hormonal risk factors, there's environmental risk factors, which would uh, take into consideration are you playing on grass or turf or what type of cleat you're wearing.
29: The anatomy is also pretty fascinating. For starters, women's ACLs, they're just smaller than men's. But look over here. Women also have a greater Q angle. That's the ratio of hip width to thigh length, which basically means this can happen: the body can more easily go into a knock-kneed position, making the ligament more vulnerable. Just standing here, how how are we different in terms of our biomechanics?
30: We know that women tend to be a little bit more quad dominant. We tend to be a little bit less underdeveloped on our our back muscle groups. Also, when we tend to do things, we tend to do things more upright or erect um, than Whereas men, men tend do. To be- yeah.
29: Easy fixes for anyone, Holly says. An extra 10 minutes twice a week to reduce ACL injuries by around
30: 70%. So if we were running and we were go to the side, we would plant and cut and then change direction, plant and cut. So we the
29: idea, strengthen the muscles around the ACL. Play low and avoid the knock-kneed position.
30: This is engaging these muscles, which is your glute medius, and that's a massively great muscle to help control your lumbar spine and your pelvis um, when you're cutting and changing direction. So, this is called a Nordic hamstring. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's very hard. You'll feel your hamstrings engage. Yes, I do. Good. It's
29: starting to catch on, but slowly. Brian Maddox, head athletic trainer for the women's professional soccer team, the North Carolina Courage, uses these concepts now with his own players.
19: You're sort of watching movement, for quality of movement, whether it looks natural, where you know they look like they're not in control of what their body is doing.
29: And he says this is the type of attention and training that needs to start among the youngest players.
19: One of the biggest pre-existing uh, risks for an injury is if you've
9: had that injury before. And so I think that's why the emphasis on trying to prevent this
19: at a younger age, so when they come to us, they're ready to perform at the level we expect them to perform.
29: For now, Spec recovers. We're told the operation went well. The hope? That one day, she returns to this. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN, reporting.
1: Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thank you for that report. What's so fascinating about that is as a fan, I was very annoyed by the injuries and some of the talent that wasn't going to be in the World Cup. They and get then, injured,
0: you get annoyed. That's nice. Yeah,
1: right. Because it's all about it's all about me. I'm a, I'm a fan. That's that's what it's literally all about. It's all about you as the fan. Um, but Sanjay's report of actually going into the details and then the physiology and then what people I, I find that stuff and, to be utterly fascinating.
0: And some things to help try to yes. prevent it because it's debilitating.
1: Yes, it is. And the recovery time is enormous. Have you
0: have you ever torn your ACL?
1: MCL and meniscus, oh. uh, rotator cuff. I'm I'm an old man. <laughs> Not even 40 yet. (laughs) (laughs) All right, right, well, scientists are scrambling to figure out why a chunk of ice the size of Argentina is missing from Antarctica. We're gonna talk to an expert glaciologist coming up next.
0: Take a look at this video out of Beijing. At least two people have died. More than 31,000 have been evacuated as a typhoon there has lashed China's northeastern region. The typhoon is the strongest storm to hit that region in 17 years. I mean, what we're showing you, you just saw a house floating away. Since making landfall on Friday, it has affected more than 800,000 people and caused nearly $60 million in property damage, according to Chinese state media.
1: Well, as millions here in the U.S. and around the world are facing record-setting summer heat, Another climate record is being broken much for the South, and in Antarctica, to be clear, the sea ice has fallen to worrying lows for this time of year, and scientists, they are sounding the alarm. now. According to the National Snow and Ice Data Center, the ice is around 1.6 million square kilometers below the previous winter record low set in 2022. In mid-July, Antarctica's sea ice was 2.6 million square kilometers below the 1981 to 2010 average. So just to give you a better idea of what that actually means, that is an area nearly as large as Argentina, or Texas, California, New Mexico, Arizona, Nevada, Utah, and Colorado combined. Yikes. Joining us now is Dr. Ted Scambos. He's a uh, glaciologist and senior research scientist at the University of Colorado Boulder. Uh, I appreciate you joining us. The numbers are very alarming. And yet, to some degree, um, they're also kind of amorphous. They're so big that I think it's tough for people to get their heads around them. Can you talk about what this actually means?
9: Yeah, the... the Pardon me, the rate of growth around uh, Antarctica this winter has just been way slower than in previous years. And we've been able to monitor this area for 45 years. We have a good idea of how the ebb and flow was supposed to go. Well, it's fell back uh, quite a bit uh, this whole summer. And... um, As a result, we're quite concerned about next summer in Antarctica because when the sea ice retreats again close to the coast, it's going to expose a lot more of the Antarctic ice sheet, the permanent ice, to wave action and potential warming.
0: Why does sea ice matter so much?
9: Yeah, it acts as a protective fringe around the continent. It also helps um, moderate the climate. It keeps the Earth cool, basically, because when we have these polar areas that are bright white and frozen, a lot of heat radiates back into space and doesn't go into warming the planet. If we lose a lot of the sea, first of all, the area around Antarctica will get warmer. But then eventually Antarctica itself, this gigantic ice sheet, Will begin to change. We might see higher sea level rise rates um, in the future.
1: Is there a single thing driving this, or are there several factors? What what gets uh, gets us to this point? <laughs>
9: That's, that's really a topic of research right now. And believe me, the community is uh, discussing this quite a bit. Uh, right now, the best uh, ideas are that uh, this very warm ocean condition that we have globally has managed to stir into the water uh, around Antarctica near the surface. That's usually isolated from the rest of the world's ocean because it's a little bit fresher. It sits on top of uh, normal ocean water. Um, kind of like oil on water. Now, apparently, some of this heat that's in the ocean globally is stirring into this layer, and even a little bit of heat means it takes a longer time for that heat to come out during winter and freeze the top of the ocean. We think that's what's slowing it down. It could also be changes in the wind around Antarctica. That's been going on for many decades, actually.
0: Do you think the Antarctic system will recover in the way it has recovered in past years?
9: That really is the big question. It has been a very variable system. And we've been puzzling for many years prior to this last few years about why Antarctica seemed to be, if anything, steady or even slightly growing. Uh, the sea ice area um, in past decades when the rest of the world was showing signs of warming. But um, it's been very variable. But this drop downward is really spectacular, much bigger than any of the variations um, in the past decades. And so uh, personally, I think we have finally tripped the switch in Antarctica and we're going to see it participate in this general pattern of warming uh, around the globe.
0: Very, very unfortunate. Dr. Ted Scambos, thank you. Thank you. Cardi B has had enough in the last incident of concert goers throwing things at performers on stage. Watch this happened in Las Vegas on Saturday. Someone in the audience threw a drink at her in the middle of her song. Cardi, clearly upset, threw uh, a microphone back into the crowd. Security guards rushed onto the stage.
1: Well, Drake, Kelsey Ballerini, Harry Styles, BB Rexa, just some of the other artists who've had objects from candy to jewelry to chicken. I cannot get over people throwing the chicken, chicken nuggets. Nugget. It makes no sense to me. I know. Uh, Thrown at them while performing. Among the artists speaking out about this troubling trend, Tim McGraw, who's gearing up for his own tour. He told CNN, quote, I think it's terrible. You could really injure somebody and you could miss and hit somebody in the audience and injure somebody. What happens if somebody gets hurt? Then it ruins the show for everybody.
0: Yeah, it needs to stop. That's for sure. Okay, head for us on CNN this morning. This. It's going down. A
5: plane's going down.
0: Hmm. Terrible. A plane makes this crash landing in the water at a New Hampshire beach. It's all caught on tape. How lifeguards and beachgoers jumped in to help. your morning moment this is incredible video captured of a single engine plane towing a banner it crashed into the ocean this is near a crowded beach in new hampshire watch this what
11: do you see there not look he has seen- oh, oh. oh.
0: My the plane hit the waters at Hampton beach nose first flipped over on saturday beachgoers witnessed all of it
5: it's going down a plane's going down
24: and it's crashed and we all stood up and there's the plane upside down floating in the water
21: and all of a sudden the guy swam out and it's like wow just thank god he's alive
0: he's alive this is key the pilot the only person on board was not even injured in that crash. Plane was towed away. Cause of the crash, we investigated. But still, there's your miracle moment for the morning, huh? Yeah,
1: no kidding about it. Uh, look, Poppy, you might have some personal views on this. The top movies of the box what? office. I love it. Take a guess. This is
0: the best day ever. It is the best day ever. So is
28: yesterday, and so is tomorrow, and every day from now until forever. <laughs> you
1: guys ever think about dying? I think you contributed you contributed to, I this, contributed, to some degree. Barbie's like, still dominating yeah. the box office, made ninety-three million dollars in its second weekend.
0: I contributed fifty-seven dollars and fifty cents to that. What's that like? Not one even including, including the small popcorn. Unfortunately in New York it's like twenty <laughs> bucks to go see a movie. Yeah. My kids loved thing. it. I was telling Phil we had to sit in the front row because we didn't get our tickets early enough. So people are like buying them days and days in advance Which Did is you
1: do I I no, I've not seen it yet.
0: Take the kids. Well, would, take Chelsea, actually. Yeah. Okay. It's great. Okay. It's great. Okay. See you tomorrow, everyone. See you guys.
1: Have a great day.
0: That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.
12: Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like.